0: Live
1: from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe, welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas, and I'm here with the one and only Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio (laughs) Sputniks. Going on, man. Happy
2: Monday. Happy Monday. Happy Pe- Monday. Those How two is-
1: words don't go too well go don't go too well together. <laughs> but all things before happy on Monday aren't the best things that people is like happy or whatever. How's it
2: going? You have a good weekend? It was a good weekend, you know, it was homecoming weekend for tell me colleges all around the country, and of course it was Howard University's um homecoming weekend and it was great. Excellent. Did you go anywhere or you just I, normally, you know, we just uh, do the tailgating, go yeah, up to the right. yard. That's right. You said you don't go to the game. No, no, no. You said, no, we you don't said
1: go to the game. real people go to tailgating, yeah, not to they,
2: they, We tailgate and go up to the yard, and it's just always a um, a wonderful experience. you know, experience to just have so many, you know, if it's safe, and not that black people can't be yeah. safe, but I always take... Um, joy and events where it's just tons of us just peace and love everybody and, say page. Everybody. Say and, and it time. was so much diverse i had never seen you had like an entire from your lgbt community yeah. to i mean it was just beautiful no problems nobody i mean it was just beautiful yeah beautiful Badass. how was your weekend
1: lazy that's very, always very good.
2: Lazy. Lazy weekends got, look, are
1: good. I got my clothes washed. So okay. There was that. A little bit of the house cleaned. There was that. Okay. Um, in the middle of a war and beyond civilization. That, <laughs> look man, I am when I play that game, I play Love and Light. I am the most egalitarian civilization you can get. Until you screw with me, you screw with me, everybody's gonna die. <laughs> I, I am a firm believer in that. And he's on a vengeance. Yeah, he's it's like it's a vengeance. Everybody else, all the other teams like, okay, let's stop screwing with him. Let's just be allies with that guy. That's kind of the way I play that game. So okay. but all things been equal. It was a lazy weekend. I can't complain about
2: it. Good, good, good. What yeah. shall I start us with some news? Yeah. In domestic news, first lady Jill Biden has argued that her stepson Hunter broke no laws amid the current federal probe into his activities. In an interview with NBC News on Friday, she noted that everybody and their brother has investigated Hunter. They keep at it, and at it, and at it. And I know that Hunter is innocent. I love my son, and I will keep looking forward, the first lady added. She spoke after President Biden told CNN that he had great confidence in his son just last week. Quoting Biden, I love him, and he's on the straight and narrow and has been for a couple of years now. I'm, and I'm just so proud of him, the president pointed out. Now, I wonder, should the first lady probably speak with someone at DOJ? Because as we're hearing, they may actually be indicting Hunter Biden for an actual crime. And more domestic news, U.S. President Joe Biden says that he still has time to decide whether to run for a second term or not. The reason, quoting Joe Biden, the reason I am not making a judgment about formally running, once I make that judgment, a whole series of regulations kick in and I have to treat myself as a candidate from that moment on. I have not made that formal decision, but it's my intention, my intention to run again. And we have time to make that decision. Biden said this during an interview that aired on MSNBC on Friday. Asked about what the first lady thinks about the prospects of him running for a second term, Biden, who will be turning 80 next month, said that she was supportive. Now, I'll just say this. There are a lot of questions about Joe Biden running in 2024 and whether or not he's going to make the announcement. And in fact, I actually agree with him. He makes a very good point, because once you announce running for president, you have to run as—you have to operate, you know, navigate as a candidate and not just necessarily a president. So, yes, we're going to keep asking for sure, but there's a reason why Biden and President Trump, for this matter, who already knows if he's going to run for re-election, there's also a reason why Trump hasn't announced, because those same regulations— also applies to him. Moving on, the FBI issued an alert claiming that the Iranian-backed hacker group Pasegard Pasegard Pasegar, may present a threat to U.S. entities ahead of the midterm elections in November. Quoting, within the past year, the FBI has identified a destructive cyber attack against a U.S. organization indicating that the group remains a cyber threat to the United States. The FBI said in a report, and according to FBI information, the Iranian cyber threat group Eminet Passagard has been conducting a hack and leak operations against organizations primarily in Israel. Although Eminet's latest attacks have primarily targeted Israel, the FBI judges the hacker group may potentially target U.S. entities as seen during imminent cyber-enabled operation that targeted the 2020 U.S. presidential election, the report said. So they're telling you foreign countries may, and I stress may, potentially attack our cyber system here in the States. A federal appeals court issued an administrative stay on Friday temporarily blocking President Joe Biden's plan to cancel what could amount to billions of federal dollars for student loan debt. According to reports, the court's edit, could throw the program into limbo only days after students start applying for forgiveness. It is unclear what the decision means for the nearly 22 million borrowers who have already applied for relief, but White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre encourage bor- borrowers to continue applying for aid while things are sorted out as the court's temporary order does not prevent prevent applications or their review. Remember I said Biden knows that this will be turned over?
1: Yes, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. When I heard the news over the weekend, I was like, Luke was right. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah.
2: So we'll see what the appeals court does after this. The Trump Organization is about to face a criminal trial, the result of a three-year investigation that included two trips to the Supreme Court to force former President Donald Trump to hand over his tax returns. Manhattan prosecutors have accused the Trump Organization of helping top executives avoid paying income taxes on compensation they received from the company. The star witness for the prosecution, Alan Weiselberg, who was a top executive for the company, said he received a Manhattan apartment, tuition for his grandchildren, and a Mercedes, a Mercedes car for him and his wife. I wouldn't be surprised if that very thing happened. Former U.S. President Donald Trump hit it at his readiness to take part in the next U.S. presidential election in 2024. Speaking at a rally in front of his supporters in Texas, Trump reiterated that the results of the 2020 presidential election were rigged and stolen. I ran twice, I won twice, and I did much better the second time than I did the first, getting millions more votes in 2020 than I got in 2016, and likewise getting more votes than any Sweden president in the history of our country by far now in order to make our country successful and glorious again i will probably have to do it again trump said trump is right he did receive the most vote of any incumbent president in the united states history i just wish my members of my party will accept that it actually is also possible that joe biden got most the most president the most votes out of any presidential nominee in history it is possible because it happened in international news the threat of ukraine using a dirty bomb is real and is up to western countries whether they want to believe in the danger kremlin spokesman dmitry peskov has said quoting the fact that they do not trust the information which provided which was provided by the russian side does not mean that the threat of the use of such a dirty bomb ceases to exist. The threat is present. This information was brought to the attention of the Russian defense minister's interlocutors. It's up to them whether they want to believe it or not, Peskov told journalists in a briefing on Monday. Russia's defense ministry reported on Sunday that Russian defense minister Chiogi had conveyed his concerns about Kiev's possible use of a dirty bomb and phone calls with his French, British, American, and Turkish counterparts. According to Russian military intelligence, the bomb's creation has reached its final stage. US, European, and Ukrainian officials have dismissed Moscow's concerns with Ukrainian foreign minister Foreign Minister Dmitro Kaluba. K- tweeting Sunday that his country was a committed party to the non-proliferation treaty and, quoting, neither party has any dirty bombs nor plans to acquire any. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky similarly denied the allegations, alleging that if Russia calls and says that Ukraine is allegedly preparing something, it means one thing. Russia has already prepared this. France, Britain, and the U.S. issued a joint statement rejecting what they said were Russia's transparently false allegations. More international news. Xi Jinping has been elected for a third term as head of the Communist Party of China, according to the decision of the CPC's Central Committee. He also secured a third term as chairman of the Military Council of the CPC- Central Committee and what came after the 20th Congress of the CPC wrapped up on Saturday. Quoting China cannot develop without the world and the world also needs China. After more than 40 years of unwavering efforts towards reform and opening up, we have created two miracles, rapid economic development and long-term social stability, he pointed out. More international news. Former UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak has announced his bid to replace Liz Truss as the next British Prime Minister. In a statement on his Twitter page on Sunday, Sunak wrote that the UK is a great country, which, however, faces a profound economic crisis. Quoting, That's why I'm standing to be the leader of the Conservative Party and your Prime Minister. I want to fix our economy, unite our party, and deliver for our country. At the same time, ex-Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced he's out of there. He has no intention on running again for the premiership, opening the door for Sundak to capture the PM position. More than 80% of Russians have expressed confidence in President Vladimir Putin, while over 70% approve of his performance. A new poll conducted by the Russian Public Opinion Research Center, VCIOM, VC, VC shows only 14% of the Russian population do not approve of Putin's performance as president, according to the Russian Public Opinion Research Center. This was survey was conducted this month with more than 80% of respondents said they trusted Vladimir Putin, while 77% said they approved of his performance. Mistrust in the Russian leader was expressed by 16% of those polled. I wonder what those numbers would be if they polled the U.S. around Joe Biden. Probably not as great. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova stated that the Washington that Washington had fueled the movement against Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban since the U.S. does not consider the country obedient enough. Quoting, now, it turns out that the opposition in Budapest was also financed. The Hungarian newspaper Magyar Nemzet published an investigation into the funding of the liberal left coalition of opponents of Prime Minister Viktor Orbán by the American NGO Action for Democracy. The investigators and special services will probe all the circumstances of the attempts of foreign meddling and the political life of the country, but it, it's already obvious that the bill approaches millions of dollars, Zakharova said. And on this day in history, 1929, Black Thursday, start of the stock market crash, Dow Jones down 12.8%. In 1962, Cuban Missile Crisis, Soviet ships approached but stopped short of the U.S. blockade of Cuba. And in 2008, Bloody Friday, saw many of the world's stock exchanges experience the worst declines in their history with drops of around 10% in most indices. These are your headlines for today, Monday. October 24th, you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All
1: right. Right on the dot. Right on the dot. Hit it on the head. So let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Malik Abdul. We'll be back in a moment with the monologue.
0: Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back
1: to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to talk about some of the reporting that has come out that has gotten more press than probably should have. And especially the way that they're framing it, um, considering that the position is not necessarily wrong. The position makes all the sense in the world. An article came out by Bloomberg. McCarthy warns GOP may cut Ukraine aid if party wins the House. And, of course, the point of this article is, hey, if Republicans take it, they may cut aid. And they're, Biden framed that as if that was somewhat of a negative phenomenon. Mind you, we shouldn't be in this war in the first place. Ukraine has admitted to being financially insolvent at this point and basically wants more money from the West. Give us more money, give us more money. And you have various countries around the West that have dumped as many weapons and as much money as they could possibly dump into that country. Again, this is nothing to do about Ukraine. This is everything about geopolitics. What is the world going to look like at the end of this conflict? And does the West have the capability to exert power and leverage in a way that can materially shape events on the ground and around the world? If they cannot, what does that mean for the powers of the West? And this notion of hegemonic control going forward that has been the rule set for the last 50 years or so give or take. The threat of the Ukraine dropping a dirty bomb has also started to bubble up. And I suspect a lot of this has to do with a certain level of desperation from the standpoint of the West and Ukraine. Their offensive has basically Come to an end 20% of the territory has basically been taken by Russia. Russia continues to make gains and back moot. And as Mark Simota kind of made the point of saying, yeah, they may still have a little bit more powder in the barrel, but all things being equal, they couldn't. They lost all of that to an expeditionary force working with the dumbass republics. And fact of the matter is if you couldn't necessarily beat an expeditionary force. What is it going to mean when you are basically confronted with the Russian military in and of itself? Look at the missile strikes. The West has basically told you that the missile strikes, oh, Russia is running out of missiles. Oh, their people are exhausted, et cetera, et cetera. Nonsense. Those missile strikes have been going on for more than a week. And some of the reporting has said that those things can go on for months even without re-upping the amount of missiles that they have, and of course, they'll continue to make more missiles. All of this has been a provocation by the West that has basically pushed this country to the brink of a disaster. Joe Biden, the president of the US, has been running around screaming about nuclear Armageddon while taking one action after the next that gets us to that potential reality. We are in a proxy war with a nuclear nation. Put that in context. We have people on the ground while in that proxy war with a nuclear nation again. Put that in context, we're on the brink of oblivion and the president of the U.S. with his vassal idiots in Europe continues to get closer and closer to that brink. It is bad enough that U.S. policy has basically driven us here. It is worse that we, meaning the domestic populations, either in the United States or for that matter in Europe, and you can even make an argument about some of the poor countries around the globe are taking a direct hit for this level of hubris. In fact, of the matter, short-sighted, muscular, or attempts at muscular, muscularity. When this is really not an attempt or show of muscularity at all, your local populations are taking a massive hit. When we're looking at the issue of inflation, the Biden administration continues to say, oh, inflation is not that big of a deal. Initially, they were blaming Putin for everything. Oh, it's Putin's fault that we're having inflation. Putin's fault that we're not getting $15 an hour. It's Putin's fault that I pooped my underwear when I was talking to the Pope. Putin is to blame for everything, but is that indeed true? Again. It was the U.S. working with Europe that expanded NATO after saying they weren't going to expand NATO. This was the U.S. choice to basically help knock over the government of Ukraine. It was NATO's choice to offer Ukraine-NATO membership, despite the fact that all of them fully understood that this was a red line. They continue to push on this angle. Even William Burns understood that the tensions that were going to take place in Ukraine could have produced a civil war, which William Burns made the point of saying that Russia doesn't want to get involved in. It was us, or at the very least, us being perfectly okay with Ukraine not fulfilling the misagreement, something that a submissive Ukrainian government could have easily been pushed into doing. It was Ukraine that put in NATO membership in the constitution after the Russophobic Nazi-powered government basically took power. And of course, the US and Europe didn't say anything as ethnic Russian Ukrainians were basically slaughtered, over 10,000 as when the government collapsed, of course, the government at that point was illegitimate. A Russophobic government took place. And ethnic Russian Ukrainians—they want to be a part of it. It's the most natural thing in the world. The point I'm making here is: this was stuff that was pushed and edged on that never, at any point, needed to take place. If you're looking for somebody to blame, blame us. That's what I'm getting at. When Biden is making this argument about inflation or that the or the um, the amount we're paying for gas, oh, that's—we're just going to have to take that on the chin for Ukraine indefinitely when Europe is trying to make that argument about, yeah, the fact that we're going to have people freezing in the winter is worth Ukraine. Good luck with that. I am more so concerned at this point about the United States, though. From the standpoint of politics, if you're looking at the situation where the U.S. is $31 trillion in debt, inflation is going through the roof in a way that is unclear on what the, let's say, how far or how bad that's going to go. What oil prices could potentially go through the roof, considering each and every choice that the Biden administration has made has increased the amount of oil, not decreased. All of these harebrained schemes that they've come up with has only been to the detriment of us. Even the economists, not a a pro-Russian outlet or rag, even comes out and makes a and says Europe is in decline. Russia is climbing out you've started and initiated a proxy war that you are basically losing. And on top of that, a financial war that you are also losing. Why is it insincere or let's say not good policy for the Republican Party to make the point of saying, hey, you did this, we're paying for this, and maybe the Ukrainian thing is not something we want to continue funding from the standpoint of a blank check in the way that you've wed yourself to this, especially if the main thing that the American public is concerned about is the economy and inflation. After all, if what you're doing in Ukraine and continuing to fund Ukraine, keep in mind, Ukraine can't keep going if it wasn't for the funding coming from the U.S. and the weapons coming from NATO and everything else. If indeed what you are doing is making inflation worse and creating a context where gas, or for that matter, the hikes are damaging to the American public then why is it wrong for the opposition party to point that out? Right here, despite Biden keeps saying inflation is not gonna be a big deal, we're not gonna have this recession, it's gonna be a soft landing. Keep in mind, this is the same guy that for the last year told you inflation was transient for a year. Think about that. How do you have something that's transient if it's going on for a year? That doesn't seem transient at all. It seems like it's instantiated into your own domestic situation. Right here, this is... Foreign times, um, financial times, quote, inflation, meanwhile, continues to run rampant with the consumer price growth accelerating again last month to bring the annual rate for the core measure, which strips out volatile items such as food and energy, to 6.6%. Now, understand what they're saying with that. The thing that you're getting hit with most, most (laughs) is food and energy because you can't do without either of those things. The idea that you strip that out and that number is still like 6.6%. What happens if you don't strip that out? Meaning, when you don't strip that out, you're getting this real, let's say, measure of what the American public is basically taking for Joe Biden's geopolitical grandstanding that is basically damaging them. And by the way, the people who vote for Biden. Meaning, if African Americans are the ones who vote, what, 90% for Joe Biden, that is his main constituency. His main constituency is the poor of the constituencies in the United States. And that is indeed the one that is going to get hit the worst, either by the rate hikes. Or, cost. Let's keep going. Quote, traders in the future markets, a federal fund rate expected to peak at 5% next year, suggesting further rate hikes or large rate hikes this year and early next year. Fed officials are set to begin discussing how to show the pace of its rates while committing to keep rates at a level that restrains the economy for some time. Jerome Powell, the the Fed chair, last month warned that higher rates and longer they stay, at a restrictive level, the lower the odds the Fed can get inflation under control without causing significant economic pain. Understand what he's saying here. Inflation has gone through the roof to such a degree, and the things that are causing an inflation is not necessarily under the powers of the Fed. Yes, the Fed is gonna try to get under control, but the way the Fed is gonna try to get under control is to constrain economic growth, which means damaging the economy in and of itself, and for that matter, cutting jobs. Most economists now expect the largest economy to tip into recession in 2023 as job losses mount. Gregory Dachau, chief economist at the EY Parthenon, suggests or forecasts a 0.7% contraction in growth next year, with the labor market shedding 2.8 million jobs and unemployment rising to 5.5%. That is 2% points higher than its current level. Other economists say it's more likely that unemployment rate will top 6%. The economists in this country are basically repudiating the things that Joe Biden is saying. And the point that I'm making here is Joe Biden has lied all the way through this. There's no reason to believe him now. He is just trying to get through the midterms. Point that I'm making here is if the president is doing things that is adversely affecting the constituents of that particular country, why is it wrong or insane for the opposition party to point that out, one, and to do something different, two, right here? This is McCarthy. McCarthy who believes he's going to be leader of a House or speaker of the House, he says, quote, I think people are going to be sitting in a recession and they're not going to want a blank check to Ukraine, unquote, McCarthy said in an interview with Punchbowl News on Tuesday. Quote, They just won't do it, unquote. McCarthy has gotten the signal. He knows, A, Big Papa is not necessarily confident about these wars and is a little dodgy about the whole thing. Two, the American public realizes they are in a recession. They believe they're in a recession right now. And on top of them believing that they're in a recession, when they're sitting around with 31 trillion dollars in debt, when they're sitting in a situation where they're losing their jobs and that the money or the expense of things keeps going up. Why the hell is it weird that the opposition party wouldn't cater to the needs and the demands of the public, whether they would do something about it in real terms or not? I'm making the point that it makes all the sense in the world for the Republican Party, led most likely by Big Papa, to come in and say, We don't like this. We're dodgy about this. Why is the American public accepting this level of pain? Did the American public need to accept this level of pain? Meaning, did the White House need to get us into this kind of economic war that they wanted to get involved in, not to mention a literal military war while all of those people are being slaughtered? What, 100,000 Ukrainians are expected to be dead as a direct result of this military engagement with the White House and NATO? Clearly, wanting to fight to the last dead Ukrainian. And by the way, fighting to the last dead Ukrainian doesn't mean that that last dead Ukrainian fires the shot that wins the war. It just means they outright lose. Why is it wrong for McCarthy to basically bring this up? Right here, while supporting Ukraine and battling against Russian invasion still has bipartisan support in Congress, faction of Republicans aligned with former President Donald Trump's, quote, America's first, unquote, stance, has been questioning the role of the United States in providing weapons and other support. Congress has passed a $40 billion package for aid to Ukraine in May, with 11 Republicans in the Senate and 57 in the House voting against it. Another $12 billion in assistance was included as a stopgap government funding bill passed by Congress in September, meaning Congress needed to keep the lights on. And in order to keep the lights on, they had to basically give Ukraine $12 billion. Why? Again, is McCarthy. Wrong. For that matter, why is Trump wrong? When Trump points out this would have never happened if I was in office, well, you mean 100,000 people wouldn't be dead and we wouldn't be dropping $50 billion into Ukraine? Is that what you mean? That if you were in office, that level of catastrophe wouldn't take place? And if so, if it did, if indeed it wouldn't have taken place, then how are they wrong to basically put the funding in question? If what the public is concerned about is inflation and economics, And if what we're doing from a geopolitical standpoint is adversely affecting the economics of the population, for the matter, damaging not just our population, but population of people who basically support and back us in military alignments and everything else, if indeed the American public cares most right now about that, why is it wrong for that to be the issue that the Republican Party bring up? Again, whether they do anything about it or not, if we are doing things from the standpoint of our geopolitical standing that is hurting our domestic populations, maybe we should stop. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm here with Malik Odu. We'll be back in a moment. We're going to talk about UFOs. Extremely happy about that. We're going to have Dave Beatty on. He's an investigator. Great guy. Um, all things be equal. You guys are listening to the Fault Lines. Back in a moment. Fault
0: Lines. lines.
1: Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course. You can reach us by phone at 202. 521-1320. 521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. I am over the moon excited to introduce our guest, Dave Beatty. He's an Emmy award-winning producer and cinematographer, UFO researcher, and TV journalist, and documentary filmmaker. Dave, welcome back, my man. How are you doing this morning?
3: Hey, uh, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me again.
1: Oh, I it. absolutely. And just so I'm clear, the last name is Beatty, correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. excellent. And I, I hate messing up people's names. People often mess up my own name. So, let's talk about UFOs. And I want to talk about this from the standpoint of Congress, and I want to talk about the new organization that Ryan Graves is working with. Ryan Graves is a Navy fight, uh, fighter pilot, and he was one of those people that came out and basically said, look, we are encountering these things in the sky. We're encountering these things all the time. This was one of those interviews. I believe it was done either by NBC News or CNN. I can't remember which one. But they basically was making a point of saying, this is stuff that we're encountering all the time. You even had, um, what is his name? What is his name? The one that was flying on 9-11. He was dealing with the Nimitz. It'll come to me in a moment. But the one that was basically in the air saying, I watched that thing for like five minutes. When I tried to go in on it, the thing took off on at like at, at a ridiculous speed. And he made the point of saying, this is not something that I was all that much familiar with, despite being a high-ranking Navy pilot or um, fighter pilot myself. That name will come to me. It is. Aggravating me, and I can't think of the name right now. But I want to get to your take on this. So right here, this was Politico. The American Institute of Aeronautics and Ast- Astronomics, which includes among its members the country's largest defense and NASA contractors, has established three committees to study the technology, how incursions affect pilots and passenger safety, and coordinate with government agencies and international researchers. Also focus on the topic right here. Quote, we're stepping into new territory. Unquote, said Ryan Graves, former Navy pilot and defense contractor who's co-chairing AIAA's Unidentified Aerospace phenomena Community of Interest. He continues. He said, but he said that the members of three thirty thousand strong AIAA drawn from aerospace contractors, government agencies, think tanks, and startups have already signed on to the effort and are, quote, super excited about what we are doing, unquote. You've been a researcher for a very long time, uh, for at least a decade. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Yep. This is new. Right. I mean, what do you think of when you see this come into fruition, that all of these major groups and major organizations, including NASA and the government of the United States, is now looking into this further and looking to this as a real legitimate issue. Whereas beforehand, they kept saying it's swamp gas, it's interdimensional fish, it's all of this other stuff. Now they are taking this real legitimate and they're taking it as technology. What are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it's very exciting because you're you're completely correct in saying that up until now, you know, they all um, kind of poo pooed this topic, and anyone that would bring up UFOs in the, say an engineering aerospace engineering circle would be kind of laughed out of the room. Maybe you know, at a cocktail party, or they would chuckle about it and tell a story or something like that. But it was never really taken seriously at the level that we're seeing in the last few years. And you know, um, you know, it's it's heartening to me that you see groups like. This one you just mentioned uh, with Ryan Graves, um, you know, establishing a committee within this very, um, I guess, robust aerospace engineering um, group to actually take it seriously. And for them, for their leadership to even allow the establishment within their organization, you know, I think that that says a lot because Ryan, obviously, as a uh, former naval aviator, is well respected in that community. And for him to come forward and say, I'm going to have this up and bring people in to begin establishing some guidelines to study this. You know, I think it it really speaks well to the fact that some of the, the old dogs that were putting this aside saying, there's nothing to this. Every single thing that has ever been seen in the sky that's unusual is explainable. And anyone that says that there's these objects that are unexplainable and unknown is crazy. So let's get rid of it. So you have guys like Ryan that say, hey, you know, in my career, I've had these experiences with my fellow aviators that have seen these things that are uh, hazard to flight safety, especially with, you know, our, our naval and air force aviators that are out there training in, you know, billion dollar jets and, and so on, you know, that we don't need these things flying around um, our jets and, and training operations that could, you know, put crews in, in in jeopardy. We need to figure out what they are. So I think... Just establishing that group within uh, that organization is really important.
1: So Ryan Graves, he cited eleven. Oh, by the way, the person's name is David Fravor and Alex Dietrich. Those are the ones that was flying around the NIMICs. Basically, you had four pallets or two pilots with their co-pallets. You had the ship on the ground itself following this thing on radar. And Graves um, Fravor was the one who initially came out, basically talking about the story and basically explaining it with the other ships and everything cooperating. What he was saying. So right here, Ryan Graves said there were 11 near misses in 2019. And his thing is basically, look, we need to figure out what this is. But as you go into the story, though, he says, quote, it's almost like seeing a bullet go past you as a pallet, right? Graves said, quote, people have no idea what's going on. It's going to be frightening or it's going to be frightening people, which is an astonishing thing to say. I mean, if I have, what, 40 years where they're acting like this is not a real thing. And now all of a sudden they turn on the dime and they're talking about this stuff in the context of aviation safety, but they are talking about technology, which is the weirdest or wildest part to me. If we didn't build it, who did? And what is this? Meaning they're looking at this from a scientific point of view, which is something that I I am glad that they are. I wanna move slightly to Lou Elizondo. Lou Elizondo made this argument that ufology needs to die. Now, the reason he said this had to do with, he wanted it to be more scientific and academically rigorous. And that right now, that's not really the case. You have people screaming, aliens are eating babies. You have that section of ufology. But you also have the section that wants to try to get to the bottom. Okay, what is it we're dealing with? And scientifically evaluate it. Do you think he's right on this? Or do you think his detractors, I mean, because he has plenty, right? And I'll just ask you that way. Do you think he's right? Does ufology need to die? Has it been in some respect of productive because it kept it going for all of this time, but has it run its course in regards to what we needed to be going forward? What's your take?
3: Well, I mean, there is a subculture, um, you know, with mythology, I think it surrounds uh, ufology. So, you know, he may be talking about that fringe element that sort of gloms onto theories and everyone has a different theory. And then you also have this, this idea that, um, you know, there's aliens and so on, uh, you know. But really, when you look at UFOs or UAPs, as they're now calling them, I mean, it's a real mystery. And, you know, the government has established that this stuff is real. unexplained. It doesn't seem to be our foreign adversaries uh, technology It's in our skies. And, you know, as we find out now that they're looking at undersea as well. But right. I think that when you look at it, right, it's it's like, yeah, man, this needs to be approached from a scientific standpoint. We don't know what it is. You can't jump to conclusions and try to figure out, say, okay, we're going to start with this idea that it's alien and then go from there. That's not how science works. It's it's a mystery. Let's first take it seriously and not just mock it, you know, with the ridicule and stigma. Let's allow pilots to be able to report these incidents when they see them without fear of losing their jobs, which is still going on, by the way, in twenty twenty two. I mean, just last month, you know, this was going on. So let's like figure out how we can first allow people to report these things. And yeah, I mean, we need to establish some mechanisms so that we can report these things and then we can get teams together that are, you know, the people that are smarter than me that can start trying to figure this stuff out.
2: Hey, Dave, thanks for joining us. It's Malik here. Um, I, I'm one of those, you know, there was a period of time where it's like, oh, well, you know, there's nothing to this. And we've heard, just over the years, I mean, many, many, many decades of people, you know, mistaking, um, you know, flying aircrafts for, you know, extraterrestrial yeah. like, type of things. So, it's an alien. Yeah, it's like, no, yeah. dude, that's so, just a Yeah, drunk. so there have been instances <laughs> of that, and I actually will just tell. I, I live here in D.C., and I know that there was once, and I never was been, been able to explain it, but there was a B-2. There was a, yeah. I think they call it a B-2 spirit, the bomber. Uh-huh. The stealth bomber, it flew over, and I don't know if you if you've never heard one or been near one, it is an amazing thing because it's very loud. Yeah. It sounds like a huge, almost like a huge vacuuming yeah. sound, but it hovered and mm-hmm. it moved. Nowhere. I was fascinated that something like that can even exist, yeah. can be so low to the ground, can be so loud, and then it just kind of disappear. And I knew it was a B-2 bomber. Yeah. I could literally yeah, yeah. see that. But, um, Dave, over the past uh, two months, there have been about a dozen or so pilots actually talking about the fact that over the Pacific, there have been these sightings. Mm-hmm. And at this point, they're saying they can't explain exactly what it is. Right. And those
1: pilots would know what that plain is. Yes. That was
2: and the catch. And, yeah. and this isn't, you know, conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Somebody we're not in Roswell or anything like that, because these are pilots from Southwest, Hawaiian Airlines, and many others. My question to you is in addition to that, that there are now NASA is forming this group um, to study this. I can't think of the the NASA. Let's see, can I get the Yes, yes. So they've actually, they're forming a group of about 16 researchers who will spend the next nine months studying this. But what do you think is driving this new sense of, and I don't an urgency is not
1: the right word. No, urgency feels right. Is, is that the right It feels thing? right. I mean, because it feels so, it's like, okay, we're like not going to pay happened? attention to this for 50 years. And then all of a sudden, now this is a big news. Yes. You got to deal with it now. Get to the bottom of it now.
2: Yeah. yeah. So Dave, that, that is my question. What, did you think, what do you think is driving this um, new sense of urgency around this or new attention around this?
3: Well, I mean, first of all, let me address the first thing that you brought up. And I'll just say that, you know, pretty much 95% of all U- UFO reports turn out to be prosaic se- ex- That's right. It's just because there's so many things that people see at night in the sky and so on. But yeah, I mean, about 95% of those um, cases do end up being perhaps misidentifications of aircraft and other, you know, objects that people might see um, in the sky. Um, Now, flipping over, though, that, you know, you have those 5% that remain. Now, why would it, why would now be a time when, you know, that we're more interested in this? And I think that it kind of goes back to guys like Lou Elizondo that sort of stepped out of the shadows of the intelligence community um, in, in, you know, the Pentagon and so on that, Brought this to the attention of mainstream media and the New York Times and so on in 2017, when they came forward and said, "Hey, look, you know, we were studying this stuff. I was put in in, in charge of a group that was looking into these cases. We started looking at some of the Navy um, events that occurred, like you mentioned with Commander Fravor, Alex Dietrich, Trick. They were on 60 Minutes. You know, that's what it was, Sixty Minutes, driving their event. And and um, Luella brought that forward. And then, you know, in the, in the years since then, we've seen these um, uh, congressional inquiries beginning. So, you know, we're on the cusp of that right now. And I think that, you know, NASA is one of those organizations that they're looking for, for sort of information. Um, obviously they they have sophisticated sensors um, and, you know, they have scientists that have been looking at the, the stars in, in our skies for decades. So they have that scientific rigor I think that that's an important aspect to this, as well as all the other groups that we have, the intelligence community. Um, you know, We have uh, many, many universities that have astrophysics departments. So I think that, that because of this kind of inquiry that's beginning with Congress um, in the Senate select committees of intelligence and so on, that you see these other groups on the outside saying, hey, we need to get ready because... They're asking us to get this information to them.
2: And it's something, you mentioned Space Force, and I, I remember when Donald Trump first announced that he was um, creating the Space Force, and it was a lot of ridicule. Media, obviously, um, mocked the idea, but I think this is something, I don't know if you if you um, know, I think this is something that initially was, was it back in the Reagan era when they first started talking about it? So this whole idea of a Space Force agency isn't a new thing but do you expect with the space force particularly like well do you think do you expect them to be more aggressive when um, investigating the what we're calling the UAPs um, do you expect that level of um, attention to it now that we have the space force Is that the, the defining thing that now that we have the space force that we're really looking forward to doing this or do you think we would have done it whether or not we have the space force at all?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, I personally would probably say that I think we would have done this, um, you know, anyways. Because mm. what's coming down, what came down since 2021, you know, um, with, with Congress basically asking for the reports and so on. But, you know, I obviously would like to know a lot more about Space Force. I think there's, it's a lot of secrecy that surrounds that. I mean, what exactly are these guys doing? Because, you know, do we have a platform in a orbit where, you know, that they're shooting guys up there to... Uh, look at uh, adversary satellites and, you know, the weaponization of space is kind of intriguing. And I don't think that- Oh, it's terrifying. knows much about it. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I think that's terrifying. I mean, you know, our military wanted full spectrum dominance, which means basically to be able to attack anything around the globe. I mean, I can imagine these platforms that are basically hovering over, you know, with missiles, that fully ballistic that can hit anything. It just hovers over um, the world. Uh, That's terrifying stuff. I mean, from your standpoint- when the reports came out, the ND um the National Defense Authorization Act, like I think it was Marco Rubio who initially put the language in to study this stuff first. That may have been before Space Force, but I'm not certain. Um, what do you what do you take for a moment? The the idea that the belief was that Hillary Clinton was gonna win. And that Hillary Clinton was, if you remember, was walking around, got caught with a UFO book. Um she was pushing her people on I think it was Jimmy Kimmel show to bring up UFOs so she could answer the question and saying we're gonna look again, etc. And then you get the situation where Trump wins. And after Trump wins, all of this information comes out about UFOs that the Pentagon had access to that was released. And the Pentagon initially was like, we have no idea what that is. The Pentagon comes back and says, OK, fair enough. We do know what that is. It was three videos, I think, that was released. And so all of this happened before the election and before Donald Trump came in and before Donald Trump added Space Force. Is the belief that Clinton was interested in UFOs and that that stuff was supposed to come out while she was president, giving her the impetus? Look further. I mean, do you add anything to that? I mean, it, who said that? George um, Cameron said that. Um, made made that point. What do you think about that? I mean, I think there's a there's logic to it that could be the case. Those videos did come out with the expectation that Clinton was going to be president. What do you think? Give me your take on that, just in general. I know that's conspiracy theory, but give me your take.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's you know it, that's kind of a little outside my wheelhouse, but I will say that you know Tom DeLonge, um formed the group to the Stars Academy, right. to, to this, obviously, Lou Alessandro was part of that team, Christopher Mellon, um, and other government officials. Uh, Tom, you know, was was writing these emails that ended up on WikiLeaks. Exactly. Basically kind of led this idea that, hey, these, you know, Air Force general officers have come to me, I've briefed them, and that we have a um, basically a plan for the the release of this information and they're on board with what I'm trying to do. So, you know, of course that, I don't know, ever came out. We haven't seen what what he was talking about. It looked like in the run up to that election that there was stuff in the works. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Let me ask you this, the, uh, the agency basically, all right. So liberation times is coming out saying um, that they are expecting additional congressional mm-hmm. inquiry and that the new defense authorization act, is going to put in information that basically protects whistleblowers for releasing information that they didn't necessarily supposed to release right here it says once National Defense Authorization Act 2023 becomes law. It's expected that public congressional hearings will take place and whistleblowers have already been requested to testify. It has also been confirmed in multiple sources that information related to alleged of UAP retrieval and reverse engineering programs has been verified by Congress. I have no idea about that. And I get, this gets into the whole Lou Elizondo thing about UFOology needs to die. The person who basically came out with that. I'm sketchy on right here. There is some urgency now from Congress to provide transparency. Some insiders hope that any release of information could potentially bring people together at a time when the likelihood of nuclear conflict has risen. Do you think that those congressional hearings are gonna, let's say, break ground? I mean, from my standpoint, it was gonna be very slow and methodical because anything you put out, you're stuck with. And so the first congressional hearing come out, instead of them bringing out real people who were experiences of that stuff, let's say bring Fravor and have that conversation into congressional record, they bring out, what, two generals or something, never seen anything, and it's like, yeah, we're relaying to you what we heard. Is that going to change? I mean, it can't keep being, you know, unproductive in regards to what they're coming out with. And do you trust the Department of Defense to do anything real on this issue in regards to exposing?
3: You know, it's it's truly interesting to think um, that we're really on the cusp of what I would call the second governmental UAP report, which is due out on Halloween. Right. Well,
1: End of the month. That's
3: right. Yeah. And. In that article in Liberation Times, um, Christopher Sharp, the, the journalist that wrote that, is insinuating that there are people that he's aware of that have already stepped out of the, I guess you would say, it, the aerospace industry or government industry that have information to relate to Congress. And in, in, these, in this um, you know Defense Authorization Act, there's language that has been added, 31 pages to be exact, that's going to most likely become law later this year, um, that puts into place a secure system for people to come forward that have information from programs, they sometimes call these legacy programs, which would be, I guess, programs that have been studying um, this topic, That secret, most likely. Um, there's even um, been rumors that there's programs that may have captured some type of material. Again, these are rumors, there's nothing substantiated to date. But in that article, he's alleging that, hey, there are people that have already kind of agreed that if they're given immunity from, say, their um, breach of security or non-disclosure agreements, that they, they won't risk losing their clearances or they won't risk losing their jobs, that they're willing to come forward and talk. I talked to Chris Christopher yesterday and I said, you know, what do you have on this? And he's like, well, I have some very um, good sources that When I have these types of sources he's talking, he says, like, if I have independent people that are all telling me the same thing, then maybe there's something to it. I'm kind of, okay. I get you. But, you know, I'm not buying into
1: that. I need to see it. (laughs) I need to see it. Yeah. No, I agree with you on that front. But look, there are people. I mean, in Washington, D.C., they had the – DFO meeting with, oh, I can't think of his name. I can't think of his name. It'll come to me in a moment. But he was the guy who was at the nuclear facility. He was one of the general or one of the commanders of a particular nuclear facility. And there were multiple people that were there. Many of those guys that were at those facilities basically saying, I was there, the nuclear power, um, the nuclear missile shut down. And he released all the disinformation, documentation of everything else associated with um with the records of that stuff. And People like him, I mean, that level of conversation or that level of basically saying, look, I was there. The nuclear weapons shut down. That is not supposed to happen. And what I didn't know, that apparently this was taking place over the course of the year. And this took place at multiple facilities um, in the U.S. So those are the people who I want to testify. And I agree with you on that, right? It's like I need to see more data for something that that's that big. Now, let's say they do have the goods. What does it mean? Meaning, if they walk out into Congress and they say, "Look, I was there, I was working in the retrievals, and yeah, we do have this stuff. I don't necessarily know where it is now, but I was there when this stuff was released, and that gets added to the congressional record. What does it mean?" It's it's
3: really interesting that they're at, you know Congress is asking the Government Accountability Office to go back to January first, nineteen forty seven, right. And for those that don't know, that was the year of Roswell, 1947, the summer of 1947 was when this Roswell incident allegedly occurred, where, where there was a crash and so on. Um, so, you know, it's sort of interesting. I don't know if that's just like that these guys kind of had a sense of humor and they're like, okay, we're going to go back to <laughs> you know, Roswell, sure that there wasn't something we're, we're missing here, but other people have said, no, that's very specific. They're not writing these laws in a vacuum that they know exactly what they're looking for. So they're going to put this language in there. I mean, I don't know what it means. Obviously, if someone comes forward, what are they going to say? They could say, hey, um, we're just going to let you know that we did have a program like Blue Book that was secret and we were studying UAPs. We never found anything. It could be something like that or, it could be, you know, hey, you know, we're right, Patterson Air Force Base. Well, they did bring that machine over there. It's still there yeah. you know, and some uh, – a steel-lined vault or something. I don't know. Just
1: so I'm clear, though, I'm asking this from a larger perspective. Let's say they drag an alien out <clears throat> and say, all right, this is what we had in the basement. This is what we had in the basement or a ship or whatever. We don't know what this is. Here's some piece of technology. More likely not be something minor and small. Um, what does it mean for us as a planet? I guess is what I'm getting to. Like, it seems that there's been something that's been added to our reality that is somewhat of a black box, especially with Congress going into this. And if Congress comes out with something that is unique, that is different, that breaks our laws of physics? Meaning, if they can show something that is not of here, the world changes.
3: It's a paradigm. It's a paradigm shift. I mean, just the idea that there's evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that there is a non-human intelligence that's interacting with this planet, you know, would be a paradigm, uh, you know, of our lifetimes. basically. So, aside from, I mean, I'd be kind of pissed that, like, Hey, these guys already knew this and they kept it you from know, us for 75 years. You know, I mean, that's not right, you know, yeah. but I don't know. I kind of find it hard to believe. <laughs> I mean, I just like to know that, yeah, they're taking it seriously and they think that there's something to the sightings that people are having. We need to take it more seriously. We we need to establish programs that are studying this and, and get to the bottom of it, you know?
2: And that's a good point because last year we know that the government actually declassified A lot of documents and witness test testimony for a number of um, Air Force um, former Air Force pilots, and they were literally talking about their encounters and what they. The reason that they, excuse me, the reason that they actually declassified that is that it was supposed to support the claim that nuclear missiles were disabled um, as a UAP object kind of hovered nearby. No one until this day has been able to explain why. The nuclear missiles were um, disabled, but we do know just last year the government decided to declassify um, some of that information. So there has been, you know, testimony here and there, but I think we're probably going to see a more um, direct involvement on the government in uncovering these type of things. So you make some very good points. Robert Selyas was the guy.
1: Yeah, uh, this is the one. Uh, yeah. The
2: former Air Force yeah, he officer. He was over here, yeah.
1: and it was another guy. It was another Robert Jacobson or something like that. Robert
2: Hastings?
1: Was it, was Hastings, it Hastings or? It might. Have, uh, Jacobson. Oh, yeah,
2: Robert Jacobs, yeah. Uh, former USA USAF uh, Lieutenant and Missile Test Photographic
1: yeah. Officer. He yeah. was the one who basically said the missile went up. He said the missile eventually tanks. They drag him into the room, and they said, "What is that?" They have video. He's the guy who does video. Mm-hmm. And they show him a little craft that is flying around the missile, hits it with a beam, and then flies off. Mm-hmm. Now, Jacob said that the that the government officials—not funny. Don't think any of this is funny. He's like, basically, what did you do? Like, how are you screwing around with this? He was mm-hmm. like, that wasn't me. I don't know what this is. He said he told him, okay, forget that we had this conversation. You can leave. And he's walked out like, what the hell did I just see? Wow. I mean, he was putting—I mean, his job was to be the videographer— of um, the missile launch. He was making sure that the missile launch went okay. And he said this thing is like flying around a craft and he's walking out thinking alright, I have no idea what I just saw. Um, they told him, he says, that looks like a UFO. He says, no, that's not a UFO. Get out. Yeah. And, and so
2: that testimony is what they de- declassified last year. So that Isn't very, that fascinating? Very, so that very testimony.
1: They were sitting on that. Yeah. They were sitting on that. I guess, um, look, Dave, we have to leave, but Anything else you want to add to this, just kind of as a closing remark to this conversation and about the whole issue itself? We have about 30 seconds.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I would just look to the end of this month. I mean, there's various UFO researchers out there that are saying, hey, there's something coming at the end of uh, October. I don't know If that's just this report that there's a classified and public version that's going to be released um, by DOD. I don't know if there's anything else, but I'm, I'm going to be looking for Halloween. You and I both.
1: You and I both. Dave, always appreciate these conversations, man. It's always nice to be able to kick back to about UFOs. Dave Beatty, um, he is Emmy Award-winning producer and cinematographer, UFO researcher and TV journalist, and documentary filmmaker. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Malik Abdul, back in a moment.
0: Fault Lines. Fault Lines live from the
1: divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And in the right corner, we have Malik Abdul at this point, since there's only two of us. That means you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas on Radio Sputnik.
2: Yep. Riley screwed I that got up. My, no, I got my corner. You yeah. didn't screw that up. Well, usually, I got a corner well, now. Well, beforehand, <laughs> Reese was here.
1: And so it was like, okay, this is a little weird to have all of these corners in the room. There's too many corners. <laughs> yeah, there's so many corners. <laughs> this is not a triangle. Yeah, it's like basically like a circle at <laughs> like that point where it's like, all right, go sit in the corner in this round room. Um, but yeah, at this point. But um, always enjoyed talking to um, Dave Beatty. I, look, I love, I am the UFO correspondent for The Snipper. Mm. Officially so. Oh, wow. And officially? Officially so. I went to the boss. and was like, look, this is what I want to be. Uh, whatever, man. Okay, sure. And so I wrote that down. All right. I am officially the correspondent That <laughs> the network. Um, A job so, nobody wanted. Yeah, I know, right? The job nobody even knew existed. I was <laughs> like, I will assume this position. Um, I had the opportunity to go to the thing with Solias. It was maybe four or five military personnel having that conversation about the nuclear weapons, missiles, Have and everything else. The National else. Press Club? Yeah. It yeah. It? yeah. And fascinating conversation to engage these guys with where they are talking about this openly. And Solias is open to having congressional testimony. He even went to Brazil to give testimony. Brazil has this thing called Operation Saucer where— well, I'm not going to go into it. It's just fascinating stuff. The Brazilian government was investigating UFOs in that country. They sent the Air Force to um, investigate it. It's in their own records. I mean, you can go to the Brazilian website, they do even talk about it. Uh, but great talking to you, Dave. Always appreciate talking to him. But let's do this. Let's get into our headlines in the news. First lady, Jill Biden, has argued that her stepson, Hunter, broke no laws amid the current federal probe in his activities. In an interview with NBC News on Friday, she noted that, quote, everybody and their brother has investigated Hunter, unquote. They keep at it and at it and at it. I know Hunter is innocent. I love my son and I will keep looking forward, unquote, the first lady added. She spoke after President Joe Biden told CNN that he had, quote, great confidence, unquote, in his son last week. Quote, I love him. He's on the straight and narrow, and he's been for a couple of years now, and I'm just so proud of him, unquote the POTUS, when it's out. Years? <laughs> years? All right. I mean, some of those videos didn't look like they were years old, but okay. U.S. President Joe Biden said he still has time to decide whether to run for the second term in 2024 or not. Quote, the reason I am not making a judgment about formally running, once I make the judgment, a whole series of regulations kick in and I'd have to treat myself as a candidate from the moment on. I have not made that formal decision, but it's my intention, my intention to run again, and we have time to make that decision. Unquote, Joe Biden said during an interview that aired on MSNBC on Friday. Asked about whether the first lady thinks... But his prospects of him running for a secretary, Biden, who would be turning 80 next month, said she was supportive. And as such, I have argued that Joe Biden, Jill Biden doesn't love her husband. The reason I say that is if you have a man that gets on stage and makes that many gaps, doesn't quite seem to be there, doesn't necessarily have the physical or mental capabilities in order to do the job. Then at a certain point, you have to. All right. All right, Joe. Time to call this quits. Now, I get that Joe Biden doesn't necessarily or may not necessarily want to call it quit. I guess we're going to see what happens after the um, Senate and the House maybe flip to Republicans about whether or not he still wants to go. But <clears throat> I don't know. Let's keep going. I just have this idea that if I was married and if I was acting like Joe Biden, my wife, if she loved me, would just say, all right, all right, dear, here's some applesauce. Let's call this a day. Oh, but let's keep going. The FBI issued an alert claiming the Iranian-backed hacker group, imminent may present a threat to U.S. entities ahead of the midterm elections in November. Quote, Within the past year, the FBI has identified a destructive cyber attack against a U.S. organization, indicating the group remains a cyber threat to the United States. Unquote, the FBI said in a report. Quote, According to FBI information, Iranian cyber group Eminent, uh, what is this, Harsagad, has been conducting hack and leak operations against organizations primarily in Israel. Unquote. Although Emmett's latest attacks have been primarily targeted in Israel, the FBI judges the hacker group may potentially target the U.S. entities as seen through Emet's cyber-enabled information operation that targeted the 2020 U.S. presidential election report, said, right, because everybody's trying to get us. A federal appeals court issued an administrative stay on Friday temporarily blocking President, oh, thanks man, temporarily blocking President Joe Biden's plan to counsel what could amount to billions of dollars in federal student loans. According to the report, the court's edict could throw the program into limbo only days after the students started applying for the forgiveness. And it, it, it's currently unclear what did the decision mean what the decision means for the nearly 22 million borrowers who have already applied for relief? But White House Press Secretary, Jean Pierre, encouraged borrowers to continue applying for aid while they are sorted out while it's being sorted out. As a country temporarily a temporary order does not prevent application for their review. And look, Malik made a point a long time ago, dude, he did this because he knew it was gonna get challenged in court. And look, Joe Biden could have used what is it, the educational secretary of education, the thing that they were using basically to postpone payments. But for whatever reason, he used this kind of odd regulation that got challenged. Now, you could say that Biden didn't necessarily believe in it and use this as a way of saying, well, I tried. The courts just pulled me back. The 2003 Heroes Act. Yeah. Think about
2: that. Yeah. He's using an authority tu- that they use post 9-11 to
1: postpone student loan debt. That's <laughs> so <laughs> aggravating. Because whether you want to talk about the marijuana stuff, whether you want to talk about this, it's always half-assed.
2: I was going to say half-assed.
1: Yeah, and it's not even really good half-assed because it's not even a 10,000. I mean, the court could strike this down all the way through, and Biden is just going to come out, well, I tried. The courts keep keep killing my plans and the things that I'm doing. Well, it's not like you're putting a lot of guts, though, behind getting those things done. The $15 an hour minimum wage that you said Heroes! Heroes! These people are heroes. And then, all of a sudden, just pull back on this idea that those heroes are worth $15 an hour. Something that is already basically a starvation. Wait, whether well, it's the marijuana thing, something you could have did with a flick of a pen, or... As Chuck Schumer kept saying, student loan debt that you could have gotten rid of with the flick of a pen, depending upon the regulation that you use to get rid of it. It is one thing after another where Joe Biden has ultimately failed. And those are things that he could have did basically by himself. Let's keep going. It's aggravating. And he's going to want people to go out and vote for Democrats. Good luck. Hopefully they're going to be half-assed with their vote in the same way you're half-assed passing these policies. The Trump organization is about to face a criminal trial that can result of a three-year investigation that included two trips to the Supreme Court to force former President Donald Trump to hand over his tax returns. Manhattan prosecutors have accused the Trump Organization of helping top executives avoid paying income taxes on compensation they received from the organization. The star witness for the prosecution, Alan Weiselberg, who was a top executive for the company, says he received a Manhattan apartment to wish for his grandchild in a Mercedes cars for him and his wife. Gotta be nice. Gotta be nice. Won't be nice if you end up in jail, but otherwise, gotta be nice. Former U.S. President Donald Trump hinted at his readiness to take part in the next U.S. presidential election in 2024. Speaking at a rally in front of his supporters in Texas, Trump reiterated that the results of the 2020 election were rigged and stolen, unquote. Quote, I ran twice, I won twice. Actually, you didn't. And I did much better the second time than I did the first, getting millions of more votes in 2020 than I got in 2016, and likewise, getting more votes than any sitting president in the history of our country by far, by far, despite losing the race. Now, in order to make our country successful and glorious again, I will probably have to do it again, unquote Trump said. Trump, you got more votes because it was mail-in ballot and it was easy for people to send votes. It's the exact same reason that Joe Biden got that ridiculous number of votes. Uh, more than Obama, even. But whatever, let's keep going. The threat of Ukraine using a dirty bomb is real and is up to Western countries whether they want to believe in the danger, criminal spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, or has said, quote, the fact that they do not trust the information that was provided by the Russian side does not mean that the threat to use such a dirty bomb ceases to exist. The threat is present. This is information that was brought to the attention of the Russian defense ministers, interlocutors. It is up to them whether they want to believe it or not, unquote, Peskov told journalists in a briefing on Monday. Russia's defense ministry reported on Sunday that Russian defense minister Sergei Shorgyu has convened his concerns about Kiev's possible use of a dirty bomb in phone calls with French, British, American and Turkish counterparts. According to the Russian military intelligence, the bomb's creation has reached its final stage. The United States, European, and Ukrainian officials have dismissed Moscow's concerns with the Ukrainian foreign ministry, Dmitry Kabela, tweeting Sunday that his country was committed uh, was a committed party to the non-proliferation treaty and quote, neither has a dirty bomb nor plans to acquire any unquote Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky yeah, acquire any second um, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky summarily Um, denied the allegations, alleging that, quote, if Russia calls and says that Ukraine is allegedly preparing something, it means one thing. Russia has already prepared this, unquote. France, Britain, and the United States issued a joint statement, quote, rejecting what they said were Russia's transparently false allegations, unquote. Keep in mind, these are the same people that said Russia bombed its own uh, bombs, the power plant while its people were basically there, said that they bombed the uh, Azov battalion while they were in prison with Russia's as the captain, meaning they bombed their own prison with the idea that they're gonna kill Russian troops just because they wanna kill Azov battalion that much, despite the fact they could've took those guys all back and put a bullet in them, meaning none of this stuff makes sense. These are the same people, oh, Russia bombed its own pipeline, despite the fact that Russia had complete control over whether gas goes through their pipeline or not. These are the same people that have basically been accusing Russia of doing this stuff to themselves. It makes no sense, which makes me distrust them. If there is indeed a potential for a dirty bomb, and look, two things may be happening also So something else may be happening that the u.s and the european leaders know that this may be true and just wouldn't say it aloud even that's a potential now whether or not they're talking behind the scenes to ukraine saying cut that out or have at it we have no idea all we know right now is that there's this potential for a dirty bomb And considering they were bombing the Zaporozhye power plant it gives a little bit more credence to that notion that they're trying to do something dramatic and catastrophic we'll see Stay tuned. Former UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak has announced his bid to replace this trust as the um, next British Prime Minister. In a statement on his Twitter page on Sunday, Sunak wrote that the UK is "quote a great country" unquote. However, faces a "quote profound economic crisis" unquote. "quote That's why I'm standing next to the leader of conserv- next standing to be leader of the Conservative Party and your next Prime Minister. I want to fix our economy, unite our party, and deliver for our country." unquote He added. At the same time, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced he has no intention for running again for the premiership, opening the door for Sunak to capture the PM position. Now, under their rule set, they need 100 um, members to basically stand for a particular person in order for that person to end up being the Prime Minister. With Boris Johnson gone, Sunak's chances have jumped up to like 95 percent. We'll see what happens I don't know how Sunak is going to get them out of the situation one way or the other. I don't think there's a magical door for it, but we'll see. More than 80% of Russians have expressed confidence in President Vladimir Putin, while over 70% approve of his performance. A new poll conducted by the Russian Public Opinion Research Center shows only 14% of the Russian population do not approve of Putin's performance as president, according to VCIOM survey conducted this month. More than 80% of respondents say they trusted Putin, while 77% they approved of his performance mistrust in the Russian leader was expressed by 16% of those polled. Let's keep going. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakalva stated that Washington had fueled the movement against Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban since the United States doesn't consider the country obedient enough. Quote, Now it turns out that the opposition in Budapest was also unense. The Hungarian newspaper, Magyar Nemzet, published an investigation into the funding of the liberal left coalition of opponents of Viktor Orban by the American NGO Action for Democracy. The investigators and special services will probe all circumstances of the attempts of foreign meddling in the political life of the country, but it already is obvious that the bill approaches millions of dollars, unquote, Sekalva said. According to the report, the foundation created just before February elections enjoyed close ties with the European Council of Foreign Relations. The report also suggested that action for democracy is connected to Hungarian-born billionaire George Soros, who funds open society foundations banned by Hungarian um, several years ago. Not shocking at all. Look, NGOs are often ways for the CIA or intelligence service to express their will in a particular country. Those things often work with embassies, but even in Iran right now, one of those NGOs is fueling those protests and making those protests worse. The CIA has even come out and noted that This idea of them acting openly has changed into them working through these other groups so they don't necessarily get the amount of publicity for doing whatever they're doing in those countries. Let's keep going. The Financial Times reported that Venezuelan opposition political parties are discussing plans to oust the country's opposition figure Juan Guaido on Friday. That's so funny. Oust him. The guy is not a president, never was a president, despite the fact that Nancy Pelosi and the United States basically plucked the guy to be leader of a country. It's weird, to put it mildly. Venezuelan opposition figure, Juan Guaido, may disappear from the political arena as early as next year due to his scarce support from the United States and Venezuelan opposition analyst, Bassam 9 told Sputnik Mundo. Um, Bassam pointed out that the Venezuelans' frustration over Guaido is in particular visible in the opposition parties actions in which the politician is quote literally being kicked out unquote he added that they're specifically surprised or especially surprised about the lack of support for Guaido from washington quote because the rejection within the opposition was something unquote that has been long clear and recognized yeah washington used the guy as a patsy with the idea that he was somehow going to take over the country and they were going to pretend as if he was in charge it was the weirdest thing ever. The guy tried to have overthrows of the government, he tried to have um, this thing where he was working with this organization that was going to either capture or kill Maduro. It was super, super weird. Yeah, it was super, super weird, to put it mildly. Um, But this day in history. In 1929, Black Thursday, the start of the stock market crash. Dow Jones down 12.8%. In 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Soviet ships approach but stop short of the US blockade in Cuba. Oh, that is a fascinating one. That is a fascinating one. It's directly related to what's taking place in Ukraine right now. It's astonishing. In 2008, Bloody Friday, saw many of the world's stock exchanges experience the worst declines in their history, with drops around 10% in most indices. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, or those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Malik. All right. Yes, I'm aware. I do pay attention to the time, so don't <laughs> worry. I got it under control. Um, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. We're going to come back with the one and only Mark Sloboda. I always call him the person, wisdom, truth. Um, he tends to give a straight shoot, regardless of what's taking place. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Back in a moment. Fault
0: Lines. Fault Lines.
1: Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Malik and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Don't be shy. We'll be taking your calls at 9.15 this morning. We're going to have Kim Aberson at 9.30. So 9.15, you guys are we're going to announce the calls. So, but joining us, we're joined with the one and only Mark Sloboda. He's an international relations and security analyst. And honestly, one of the favorite people to talk to on the show. Mark, what's going on, man? How you doing this morning?
4: tomorrow Malik, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Fault Lines. Oh, right. Always
1: an honor and a pleasure to have you. Mark, gotta start with the dirty bomb stuff. Um, considering that Ukraine was bombing the zabrosia power plant, and the response from the West is, well, the Russians are bombing the, the plant themselves. Well, when it comes to stuff where Russians are basically pointing out, look, these guys are trying to create a dirty bomb. And on top of trying to create a dirty bomb, Russia contacted multiple countries in the West, France, the UK, the United States, Turkey, or Turkey, of course, is not in the West, but you get my point. Um, they basically point out saying, look, you need to stop this. This is a massive escalation, and this is going to be utterly catastrophic. Now, on the over front, all of these organizations say, yeah, we don't believe this. But do they? I know you're not going to know what's going on behind the scenes, but can you give us some details? Russia is basically saying that um, Ukraine is at the very end of the process of creating this dirty bomb. What do you know so far in this story?
4: Okay, so uh, first of all, I'll draw your attention to a piece I did on both my YouTube channel and uh, my Substack on October 5th, um could the US use nukes in Ukraine? And in it I was specifically talking about uh this type of signaling um and the possible use of a dirty bomb or tactical nuclear weapons set off in Ukraine to provide a pretext for a U.S. and Polish military incursion into West Ukraine. And here we are uh, today. The Russian defense minister contacted rather urgently uh, this weekend both – well, not just both, the British, the French, the American, and the Turkish defense ministers to say, we know what you're doing and stop it because we're seriously talking World War Three here. Um, so um, there we to, to, to step back a bit, we know that in February of this year, while attending the Munich Security Conference, that the leader of uh, the Kiev Putsch regime in Ukraine, Zelensky, specifically brought up the possibility that uh, Ukraine could uh, attempt to build nuclear devices could could attempt to build nuclear weapons um that that was february of this year um uh b- before the intervention uh as at the time of the intervention uh russia listed as one of their several reasons uh for uh going in that uh they had information that the kiev regime was working to develop a nuclear weapon um, So something that, you know, with their expertise, you know, the leftover expertise running nuclear power plants, they almost certainly have the capability of doing so given enough time and uh, financial resources uh, into doing so. Um, Then uh, we have uh, numerous statements uh, in the past, I would say, six weeks by Western uh, figures and officials. We're talking from. The, uh Polish foreign minister um, the uh, David Petraeus uh, the former head of the CIA and American general um, and uh, several other uh, high-ranking figures that uh, including Jen stoltenberg um, that if the um, Russia used a tactical nuclear weapon, Uh, in Ukraine or or a nuclear device or a weapon of mass destruction, that would be a red line, right, Uh, that uh, would necessitate a uh, Western country's overwhelming conventional response. We heard Joseph Burrell, the EU's high foreign policy muckety-muck, um, say that in that case, uh, uh, Russia's military force would be annihilated. Well, that's kind of funny coming from a, an EU foreign policy chief that doesn't actually have any EU military. But you know, uh, you know, <laughs> talking some smack there. We um, will destroy you. It's yeah, like yeah, okay, will, what yeah, yeah, will. <laughs> Oh, well, those, <laughs> those guys will destroy you, <laughs> right, right? right? All right. All right. Uh, we have heard calls from Zelensky for the world to strike. Uh, Russia. We have heard him calling for a preemptive nuclear strike on Russia. We have seen the Kiev regime launch, uh, for now more than two months, attacks on the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant uh, in an apparent attempt to create exactly such a dirty bomb incident with with uh, uh, targeting concentrations centered on fent, uh, spent fuel containers. Within the facility. And then add on to this, we have statements uh, uh, just uh, this uh, weekend by Petraeus again saying that um, the US could directly intervene in uh, the conflict in Ukraine if there would be some type of escalation, if there would be something so shocking and horrific that it would prompt a response from the u.s and other allies maybe not as nato but as a coalition of the willing meaning the poles oh, led yeah, by only. by the united states right maybe the baltics too but they don't really count because they're too small to count um so uh you know again create this is the type of signaling that we saw the u.s use uh, for their jihadist proxies in syria if Assad uses a chemical weapon, then we would have to strike, right? Uh, so we see this again. And we also have reports now that uh, the America's 101st Airborne Division, the Rapid Reaction Force, uh, has some uh, 5,000 US troops uh, located uh, in Romania, right? Right? Uh, poised to intervene here. And they said specifically, we are ready to fight Russia, right, uh, in Ukraine. If there is uh, some type of escalation, they know that without this is, saying what, what type of escalation that is.
1: But they know this would be a third world war, right? I mean, meaning yes. it's not about the framing that the U.S. may come with. It doesn't really matter, right? It matters how Russia responds to it. I mean, certainly they know that this would be utter disaster. I mean, Joe Biden is running around screaming about Armageddon while he is actively either allowing or causing that Armageddon to come about.
4: Mark Milley the US um uh, chairman of the joint chiefs of staff last week said that a um a Ukrainian defeat uh, a def- a Russian victory in Ukraine would mean the end of the rules-based order uh, that that rules-based order no, no, not 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 the existing international uh, order created, you know, with the UN Charter and everything, that rules-based international order is code for US hegemony. So they believe that their hegemony is at stake with them, meaning, you know, NATO acting uh, with the Ukraine as a proxy force against Russia, must win in this conflict. If they don't, their hegemony will collapse. There is nothing they will not do, period, and stop.
2: Hey Mark, um, it's Malik. Thanks for joining us. What What do you? Hey Malik, sorry. There are reports about. um, Well, obviously here in the West, there is a lot of discussion about the Ukrainian efforts to defeat the Iranian-made drones um, used by Russia, and they're describing that campaign as relatively successful, and saying that the Ukrainians are actually intercepting up to. I'm quoting 85% of unmanned aerial vehicles. So um, wh- what do you, Justin, can you place in context, like how is that significant at all that their forces are able to actually intercept up to 85%? Like what's, I don't know if that's the norm, but is there anything like out of the norm when talking about this? Like, is it really as successful as the media is playing it?
4: Okay, so first of all, another plug. Watch by The Real Politic this week because I did exactly a piece on the Garand to Shahed uh, 136 Mm -hmm. um, uh, loitering munitions, the the killer drones at question here. Yes, it is absolutely correct that the Kiev regime has intercepted 85 percent of this type of Russian's drones with their electrical infrastructure. They, they successfully moved their electrical infrastructure into the path of these drones and detonated the drones. Right. It also detonated their electrical infrastructure. Uh, in, case, in case you hadn't noticed, Ukraine has lost by at, – at this point, they were reporting 40 uh, percent last week. With the attacks this weekend, it brings it up to at least 50 percent of their electrical infrastructure.
1: But but they're hitting 85 percent of those. <laughs> yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. Like right? right, but they're knocking down 85 <laughs> percent of the drones, right? This is about as real a story as the ghost of Kiev – Uh, Or the the martyrdom uh, of the uh, naval infantry of of Snake Island uh, hoax, right? There's no reality to this. Have they managed to, to take down a few? Yes, yes, a few. But these drones are fired in swarms, right? Why? Because they're dirt cheap right russia is producing them domestically right they've received the rights and the technology to produce them from iran because they fill the capability that russia's more expensive drones and loitering munitions couldn't match i these are accurate and effective and they're dirt cheap they cost somewhere between 10 and 20000 dollars a pop maybe less Right. Which means that an air defense missile to shoot down one of these things is at least 20 times more expensive than the drone itself. Mm. Right. And these things are fired off of a a launcher on a a rack, basically, on the back of, let's say, a military truck, military vehicle, a lot like a multiple launch rocket system. And they fire five of them at a time. And usually it's done in batches of 5 to 10. Um, and um, they can, they've got a distance uh, from 1,000 to 2,000 kilometers. Uh, and uh, they, they are bang on to target. They're guided uh, by satellite, by the uh, GLONASS, Russia's equivalent to GPS. And they have been incredibly effective. Um, now, they do travel at very low altitude. And they are very small right? They're about the size of a person, right? Uh, So that's small. Uh, And the composite materials they're made of make them very hard for radar to pick up. So especially when you fly them at night, now they're not especially fast moving, right? Uh, And they actually make a very distinctive noise that leads, uh, has led to them being nicknamed either the mopeds, (laughs) Or the lawnmowers, right? Because of the engine noise, or sometimes because of their delta wing shape, they're referred to as Doritos, as in uh, several hot Doritos ordered and delivered to Target. Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah. It's a little little uh, grim, grim military humor humor there, right? (laughs) But yeah, they can shoot down a couple of these things, and they have. Uh, In fact, we heard on um, Ukrainian TV a soldier. Um, uh, I believe it was in Kiev, uh, talking to the host, mentioning how mentioning how with small arms fire, they managed to divert the course of one of these drones. Right. Uh Right before it hit its target. And they diverted it on the other side of the street. Like it was to hit a a Ukrainian infrastructure, uh, energy infrastructure building. Instead, they hit it. And it, they diverted it into a residential building, which it then blew up instead. So that's <laughs> you can see author. the, host, oh, man. the, the host, the host of the Ukrainian show, just fake double face bomb. He did a classic Picard double face bomb. Right. <laughs> uh, and then he said, so tell us about the cats again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you diverted it is, a missile into it is, somebody's house, <laughs>
4: house yes, into, well, so a lot of an apartment building so a lot of people's houses yeah um so yeah it is possible to take a few of these things down they are not invulnerable but 85 percent is a ridiculous claim the numbers i have seen from russia are somewhere between 10 and 20 percent and the proof of that is in the fact that, uh, uh, you know, Kiev has said that they're doing rolling blackouts, that yeah. so much of their infrastructure is destroyed, right? That doesn't happen when you shoot down 85% of incoming drones. But regardless, when you're firing, when you're firing these drones in swarms of five to ten, right you can lose two or three of them you know no six deal. seven of them it doesn't make any difference because some of them are always going to win through to the target and it's still cost effective right these things are being used as a uh, cheap um uh, uh cruise missiles effectively right, right? rather than say uh, more typically loitering munition activity that they are also capable of um a US tomahawk cruise missile costs 2 million dollars a piece mm. a a Russian caliber cruise missile, because you know the way the Russian Defense Ministry, you know, it, it works on a, a cheaper basis, uh, is just as effective, uh, if not more so, at a million dollars apiece. This, uh, these Iranian-designed, Russian-produced drones. Do essentially the same things, a slightly smaller explosive, but can be delivered just as accurately to target for ten to twenty thousand dollars a pop. This is the way the wars of the future are fought, and Russia has learned the the, uh, the you know this trick late in the game, but they're using it very effectively
1: now. What's the um, uh, so what's the phrase quality or quantity has a quality all of its own?
4: Quantity, quantity yeah. has a quality. I've said it before on yeah. the show, right? And yeah, and uh, it's. And when it comes to drone swarms, it's absolutely true. We've seen the Houthis use these against the Saudis, despite U.S.-provided Patriot missile defense uh, and other missile defense uh, to, to good effectiveness. And these Russian versions, they're upgraded with the use of GLONASS. Uh, for their uh, guidance control system, their navigation system, so they're even more effective.
2: And Mark, I'm actually glad you mentioned the the blackouts and just just to kind of ha- highlight that. I was reading seven regions in Ukraine uh, out of power. Seven regions. Well, they're experiencing wow. so they're doing these controlled mm-hmm. blackouts apparently, but they're saying that they actually were forced to impose caps on electricity supply to seven regions of Ukraine, and this is after, you know, Russia has been pummeling yeah. their energy infrastructure.
4: Yeah. And I mean, one of the major reasons for doing this is military logistics, right? Because the, the, the uh, Ukraine is getting all of these military supplies from the U.S., so even though those supplies are dwindling and they're running out of supplies to send them. But they've also got to move these large numbers of troops Around right these uh, conscripted military forces, and they do that by train, right? That that that's the most efficient uh, way to move things around. Um, and uh, the trains in Ukraine run on electricity. So you take down the electricity, you take around down the whole military logistics network, how they move troops around, uh, tanks, military gear around, ammunition, artillery shells, fuel, food supply, anything you name it is transported by train. So you shut that down, and you'll notice that since Russia started this uh, campaign – um, uh, against, uh, the electrical infrastructure. Again, something that the U S does on the very first day of say their military, uh, invasion of Iraq and stuff. Um, that, the Kiev regime's uh, offensives, or counteroffensives, if you want to call them that, uh, have all ground to a halt right. in Kherson, uh, in the north towards the, Lu- uh, the Lugansk, uh, the you know the holdovers uh, or, or the leftovers from the Horakoff Her- uh, offensive. They've just ground to a halt. They've made no progress since then, and at least part of well, part of that is because. Russia's new defensive lines starting to bring in some of the reservists, you know, depending, you know, the quick ones who, who just recently got out of the service. But another big factor is that, uh, the, they're having big logistical problems, getting the supplies and troops they need, uh, to a given location for, to, to sustain, uh, these offensives. So, so all of that is, is a direct result. And this is all considering that they had a, a very, a very robust, redundant electrical system left over from um, the Soviet Union, you know that was built during the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union built things infrastructure like this to last and to take a lot of damage in doing so. So to get it to the point where it suffered forty percent to fifty percent uh, electrical infrastructure damage, Right. You know, like totally, you know, not not fixable at this point. That's a significant amount of hits. Yeah. And you don't get that many hits when you're taking down 85 percent of the drones being fired. Um,
1: Tell me something. What is going on in Belarus? I mean, I don't quite I don't quite get what's going on. It seems that Russian troops are basically being put there um the media in this country is basically right here russian troops in belarus spur debate over the threat to ukraine the united states and its allies are playing down the dangers posed by the deployment of thousands of russian soldiers to belarus but the intelligence assessments come with a dose of uncertainty what's going on mark
4: yeah actually just this weekend the u.s military uh uh, made a statement that they believe that uh they believe that russia is about to attack uh ukraine from belarus again so that that you know, leads a new intelligence assessment. That, mm-hmm. That's what they're preparing for now. I have not seen yet um, uh, reports, uh, credible reports, that Russia has sent more than nine thousand troops into Belarus. Right? Of course, Belarus has their own military, and right. they could become involved, but Lukashenko is very loath to do so, and his military is not exactly. Um, you know the most up to date in the world. He's been very reticent to to step into this. He's he's already allowed Russia to use uh, Belarusian territory to launch attacks, particularly in the the beginning of uh, in February, in in that uh, um, uh, attempted uh, thunder runs towards Kiev. Uh, but and I I have not seen an uh, a offensive um, situation. Uh, From the Belarusian troops indicating that they're ready to go on the offensive, but it's possible some point in the future, right? We can't discount the possibility. And I, I still believe that the primary goal of all of this is to divert Kiev regime troops from other places. Right. So that they have to put troops on the Belarusian border to to defend. Yeah. But at some point, we could see more troops from Russia moving in and the Belarusian troops moving into a more offensive situation that could indicate that. And I don't believe they would go to Kiev. Right. If yeah. if the, if they were to do so. Right. And I haven't seen any sign yet, but they could move down into Western Ukraine to to cut down some of the supply rat lines coming from Poland.
1: Let me ask you this. Harrison. I'm getting two different takes on this. Um, From the standpoint of the West, they're reporting it as if basically Russia is bailing, that they're leaving, that they're trying to get everybody out because the Russian military can't necessarily withstand the Ukrainian offensive in that region. Um, On the other side of it, it's more so okay, we're getting people out because they don't want to get hit by artillery and we're trying to keep the population safe, but the Russian military has not necessarily given up on Kherson. What's the truth?
4: Okay, so first of all, the defensive lines well to the to the north of Harrison haven't haven't been able to move in the last two weeks. Right. Uh, The regime continue to make recon in force and small mechanized uh, attacks against that line. Supposedly, they have 60,000 troops built up there. Uh, but they haven't launched more than a few hundred or a couple thousand at a time so far, but they've all been really, really badly smacked down by Russian artillery, rocket systems, and aviation. Really hard, really bad casualties. And lots of Ukrainian troops and the, the foreign quote-unquote mercenaries in the thousands that are there um, are, are refusing to to march across the steppe into that killing zone. Uh, but um, Russia is not... Uh, you know, they're not uh, saying that, uh, you know, they're not uh, depending on that continuing and they're preparing for an urban defense of Harrison city. And in order to do that, they are moving, they're doing the responsible thing, according to the rules of war and move the civilians out. And the civilians there have already been under artillery shell attack, uh, uh, including uh, residential buildings, schools and hospitals by the Kiev regime. Uh, for the last, uh, over a week now, uh, about two weeks. So, uh, they're, uh, and, and they can hit that from, from the front lines, uh, particularly of course with the U S uh, longer range U S supplied systems. Um, so they're doing the responsible things and getting people out of harm's way to defend the city. Notice as amnesty international noted, when the Kiev regime has done this repeatedly, they've turned their in cities into fortresses, every building, every school, every hospital without removing the civilian population in effect using them as human shields which is a war crime notice the difference in the two strategies here but we have heard just from the UK, the Kiev regime's defense ministry this weekend okay russia is they're moving civilians out and they want us to think that they're pulling out no they actually haven't given any such signals they've just moving civilians out but actually they're moving more military reinforcements in so um I do not believe at this point that the Kiev regime is capable of um taking uh Kherson city. Right? The, the the defenses that Russia has built up enough, getting the civilians out of the way, that has been enough. Now the game the, the possible wild card in this situation is the, the is if the Kiev regime manages to destroy the Kohovka Reservoir Dam, which would flood the whole region and, and for three or five days put much of Kherson City underwater. Um, now, it's a significant dam. Uh, just this weekend, the Kiev regime launched 19 um, uh, missiles, uh, rockets towards it, right? Uh, presumably high Mars, although I haven't seen exactly what it is. Um, and uh, all but three of them were shot down, And the others that hit, it's a pretty robust thing. Uh, The thing is that this dam is not just a dam. It's also a bridge and a hydroelectric station. And it has been repeatedly attacked for months now. Uh, with these long-range um, uh, rocket systems uh, that were provided to Kiev, and they haven't managed to destroy it yet. It's pretty robust. I don't think that they'll be able to do it that way. But there's talk of uh, underwater divers, uh, with well I'm sorry, um, not underwater divers, using mines, floating uh, sea mines down towards it, or uh, possibly using underwater drones. Uh, that the UK has uh, supplied to the Kiev regime. That might be possible to do it. Uh, But, uh, you know, Russia is obviously taking steps to try to prevent that. But right now, I've seen enough forces built up in the area that – oh, and by the way, Russia has also been trying to lower – they've been draining water out of the reservoir uh, over the weekend uh, pretty significantly so that if it is destroyed, the tidal surge – Uh, will be uh, much less than it would have been otherwise. So I think they're taking, they're doing everything necessary. Uh, I do not believe that it is possible now for Harrison city to be taken by Kiev regime forces. And uh, they they haven't even managed to budge the front lines well away from the city at this point either. So, um, uh, you know, Russia's moving troops in, they're moving civilians out. That's the right thing to do.
2: Hey Mark, um, if we believe the narrative Russia blows up its own pipelines. Russia, you know, fires at nuclear power plants.
4: It's it's its own bridge. The nuclear power plants it (laughs) occupies It shells its own. You know, the cities with the pro Russians in the Donbas, killing their own people. Yes, that is the narrative. There is nothing. There is nothing that the Kiev regime can't blame on Russia, that the Western mainstream media won't, like the dutiful stenographers they are, uncritically report, and that most Western sheeple out there, and I'm not talking to the intelligent Sputnik listeners, the intelligent Sputnik audience, but you all know that most people out there will just take it. Right and believe it, no matter what. You know, uh, a, a thousand Russian troops shot themselves in the back of the head. <laughs> it's those crazy Russians, right? I mean, that's what they do. They just kill themselves all the time. It's 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 not, it's not understandable, but it's some it's some uh, you know uh, genetic thing, I guess. Well, Mark, that, that's I, what I, you know. I, we're
2: supposed to I have another one for you. Um, on Sunday, in a Facebook post, uh, Ukraine's infrastructure ministry accused Russia of deliberately delaying. It's grain initiative. Now, the reason that I bring that up is that Ukraine is saying that Russia is deliberately delaying it. On the other hand, a U.N. spokeswoman, Ismina Pela, I think that's her name. She's a spokeswoman for the Black Sea Grain Initiative. She
5: Mm -hmm. essentially
2: said that it wasn't true and that there are about 150 vessels waiting near Istanbul to move and this is all being you know coordinated through the joint coordination center which includes representatives from the u.n russia turkey and ukraine so the vessels are there with the grain and according to the u.n (laughs) russia is not trying to block any of that but ukraine says yes they are
4: (laughs) what do you all right uh (laughs) Okay, so I have heard accusations coming from Kiev that Russia is bureaucratically – Basically, there are inspections, right, that take place there before passing through uh, the Istanbul Straits Mm -hmm. there uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, they're not getting out anything out there, not that it's the grain that it's supposed to be and not anything else. and, And that weapons aren't coming back in that way. I have heard the Kiev regime say that 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 Russia is basically bureaucratically holding them up with what I mean, this is a process basically governed by Turkey, but I don't know maybe too rigorous inspections. I, I I don't know. Uh, but, uh, regardless, uh, Russia is not happy with this deal, uh, because, uh, first of all, the, uh, Western countries have not removed the sanctions or, or, or the, um, sanctions on the means of delivery of fertilizer and Russian grains Uh, to African countries that they promised to. They did remove it on fertilizer bound to the EU. So Russia's allowed to to supply fertilizer to the EU, but not to the African countries that actually need it. Um, And then the other thing is that almost, you know, the vast, vast majority of the grain being shipped is not supplied to, uh, you know, African and third world countries that really need it right? But this uh, give regime grain is instead, most of it is going to the EU. So this is uh, completely not in the spirit or, or the letter of the agreement that was resolved. It was always a temporary deal. Um, I believe it is up next. It, it was due for five months. Uh, I, I believe it is up next month or very soon anyway. And I do not expect it to be renewed without a, a more firm renegotiation uh, of the terms. certainly.
1: Let me ask you about, uh, now that we're speaking about commodities, the price cap idea. Um, What The what? The the, the Uh, price cap idea. (laughs) Right, right. The shiny new object that these guys are basically trying to push. I have heard that in a few weeks. Well, they're (laughs) they're pushing to Germany, who basically has some kind of uh, misgivings about it. But right here, this part, to me, is the part that makes the most sense. It says estimates that up to 80 to 90 percent of Russia oil will continue to flow outside the cap mechanism if Moscow seeks to flout it are not unreasonable, a U.S. Treasury official told Reuters. We kept saying from the beginning that this was a non-starter. China, India, and Brazil, basically half of the globe, said no. Russia came out and said, no, we are not going to participate in this, and you're just not going to get the energy itself. If they go through with this, what do you think most likely is going to happen? I mean, my estimate is the price is just going to go through the roof.
4: Prices are just going to go through the roof, and Russia is going to make more money than they already were, and they already have a 50% billion dollar surplus right. on oil revenues alone because, uh, of how much the West has put up prices. Um, so, I mean, there's two levels to this. One is to talk to countries that are buying Russian oil, meaning, you know, countries like China and India and Saudi Arabia and others and say, Hey, why don't you all, we're not buying that soil, but why don't you agree to only buy it for a price that we set? And you see China and India and Saudi Arabia uh, look at the U.S. and say, what?
1: That- <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, are you insane? The other le- Saudi Arabia yeah, went further. Le- they cut them yeah. out. It's you like know, if Saudi, Saudi Arabia I, yeah, needed Saudi- to make Saudi- the point. Saudi- Saudi- yeah, that much more clear. It's like they cut it. What, two million barrels a day? Just to, get, just to yeah, be very s- certain that this was dead. The,
4: s- the second layer of this is to actually go at the companies that provide the logistics. To go at the companies that provide... The oil tank, the shipping of the oil, um, and the insurance providers for those tankers, which is – I mean if you don't have insurance because of the threat of of oil – Um, uh, spills and the like, right, and the the, uh, uh, cleanup costs and everything that no one, you know, lets tankers in without, you know, insurance and everything. Uh, And that's probably a more significant possibility. And this is I.e., not going after Russia, but going after third countries and companies that provide this, right? That's what they're reduced to. But even so, I, everything I have heard says that all of the, the, the countries involved have already set up um, uh, tanker fleets and insurance uh, enough that are safely outside the ability of the U.S. to sanction them. Uh, that it will not inhibit the the the. It will not you know the their attempt to implement the price cap this way will not work either.
1: Xi Jinping has just taken his third term in power in China. Um, if he, what does this mean? And and the reason why I ask what this means. China and Russia and the relationship that they've been developing over the time. Basically, they were pushed together by the U.S. I mean, for the longest time, U.S. policy was to keep those two countries disconnected from one another, and based on this weird, I don't know what they were thinking. I, I mean, it's almost like an unrealistic um, political positioning. We basically push China, Russia, and Iran in together. I mean, we're basically antagonizing Turkey in a way where their relationship with Russia seems to be, or Turkey, their relationship with Russia seems to be expanding.
4: Are we looking and at this, Saudi Arabia, which is weird,
1: right? Like these are supposed to be yeah, allies. It's crazy, um, it's crazy. And these allies are kicking up boots with enemies. From your standpoint, is there what does the world look like at the end of this conflict? And let's assuming that they don't do anything like a dirty bomb or anything like that. They just outright lose. This organization between Russia, China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, especially when we're talking about BRICS, what does that mean for the world going forward at the end of this? I mean, look, personally, I've said it before. The issue with Ukraine is not about Ukraine. It's about this kind of geopolitical positioning of the world and whether or not the West is able to demonstrate it has power in order to influence events in a material sense. So if they can't influence events in a material sense, if they do lose on the ground in Ukraine or when they lose, not to mention Europe. Regardless of what happens on the issue of Ukraine, Ukraine can be settled tomorrow for the foreseeable future. Europe is screwed. Um, they have no magical door to get themselves out. What does the world look like going forward?
4: Yeah, so uh, first of all, Xi Jinping, um, that's a significant. Uh, third term, you know, is kind of relatively unprecedented and um Obviously, there's approval of the course that he has set their country on and also uh, the strong strategic partnership with Russia, which has become fundamental to both countries, foreign and military policy. Um, And it's not only, you know, at the strategic level, they've called it stronger than an alliance. That's Xi Jinping's own words. Um, And it's they also Putin and he have very strong personal relations by all accounts. They understand each other. Right. Um, They they understand the threat uh, to each other's countries that is being presented. I mean, Henry Kissinger um, uh, helped engineer the Sino-Soviet split, which helped won the Cold War uh, in uh, the uh, 1970s. Um, and at the time, uh, he is famous for saying that, you know, we've we've basically sided with China, uh, Soviet China against Soviet Russia. And another 20 to 30 years, we'll have to do the opposite. Right. We'll have to swing it around. Uh, and
1: um, nobody
4: got that. They memo. quite obviously. Yeah, they quite obviously never did that. They never swung it around the other way. Instead, they've pushed them both together. Where I see all of this going with the U.S. under Biden continuing. Uh, it started under Trump with different allies. Now it's continuing with Biden. The U.S. trying to maintain their hegemonic grip on power, uh, you know, so strong. So many countries are pushing back against it now. Where I see this going is not to a multipolar world. I see that as being stillborn by the U.S. and Western attempts to hold on to this hegemony, but they're pushing it us back into a bipolar world order just decades after the last one went away. They're literally forcing Russia and China and Iran and and all these other countries together that have very different political systems, very different civilizations, very different cultural attitudes, but who recognize the right of each other to live as they do without such interference in their political systems, without the military threat, Uh, uh, of of U.S. primacy hanging over them. And that's pushed them together. And you're creating a world of blocks. Block A doesn't trade with Block B, right? Block A and Block B's uh, uh, internet uh, don't uh, connect well with each other. Airspace doesn't connect well with each other. uh, And and political and social uh, mechanisms are shut down. That's what we're moving to. Another, Another cold, new hot war.
1: Yeah, but this one seems to be a bit different. I mean, we don't necessarily seem to have advantage. Yeah, in sure, this one.
4: it's not. It's not the same. It's a poor analogy. No, no, I understand uh, what you mean. Is, though, it but is a class. new, it is a new bifurcated world system because the U.S. keeps insisting on: you are either with us or against us. You either sanction Russia or you are our enemy. And a lot of countries are like, no.
1: Yeah, we don't want to participate.
4: All of Africa, that. all of South America, all of Southeast Asia are saying no. And the U.S. is getting increasingly frustrated and they're turning. I mean, the U.S. has been sanctioning their own allies. They tried to sanction Germany uh, and other European countries over Nord Stream. They sanctioned their own NATO ally, Turkey, over uh, the S-400. They threatened to do the same to India and Saudi Arabia. Uh, uh, again, for for purchasing the S-400. Now, again, with oil, they're attempting to dictate the price of oil. Saudi Arabia and OPEC really doesn't like that. They don't like a big oil consumer trying to dictate the price of oil on the global market, even you know, if ostensibly just to one player. Um, they, they are forcing countries, uh, you know, uh, and it's this over-reaching uh, uh, grasp uh, to maintain hege- hegemonic control that more and more countries are just saying no. No, we're not. We're not. We're not bandwagoning with
1: that. It just seems like this is such a jump of the shark, though. I mean, like the idea that you're at war, or at the very least, in conflict with all of these other major countries, many of which are nuclear power nations at that. And it doesn't even seem that it makes all that much sense. For example, the provocations with China, for example. I get this idea that okay, within a few years, China's going to be out the barn, so we need to drag them into something um, with Taiwan. But this didn't work out well with Russia. Why is the expectation that it would work well with China?
4: It, it will be even worse. Yeah. yeah, it's geopolitical hubris. It's hubris. It's it's hubris and stupidity, and it's th- th- a kind of a, a a feedback loop between you know U.S. and other Western experts on Russia and China that are really just propagandists, right? Uh, and and they are advising the officials, right? Uh, who are releasing insane statements that uh, are driving the media, which is driving all of this in a feedback loop of just stupid, stupid assessments and statements uh, and uh, assessments about Russia and China and these other countries. And they're living in a fantasy world. At
1: this Mark, point. we're going to close it at that. Always appreciate you coming on. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda1. And definitely check out his new YouTube channel, Real Politic with Mark Sloboda. You are going to love it. If you love it, his analysis is here, you're going to love that channel. And find him on Facebook.com slash Gramsci. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Me link back in a moment.
0: Fault Lines.
1: Lines live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst Jamal Thomas, and in the right corner, we're joined with Malik Abdul. That means you're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik always love talking to Mark, man. Mark is great. You know, great. the um, radio Sputnik thing. Somebody, and when I was in the last thing in Political Misfits, they were like, calling it Sputnik is too close to the Russian way to pronounce it. It's like, but that's the way it's pronounced. It's like if I come up with a word in English and somebody's pronouncing it wrong because it's their language, but they're the ones that pronounce it, right. it wrong. I mean, it's like, why are you complaining about that? Well, it's like, whatever. <laughs> um, but no, love talking to Mark. You talk to Mark, I, I swear, hours on end. So. But let's get a lunch. In
2: domestic news, First Lady Jill Biden has argued that her stepson Hunter broke no laws amid the current federal probe into his activities. In an interview with NBC News on Friday, she noted that everybody and their brother has investigated Hunter. They keep at it and at it and at it. I know that Hunter is innocent, I love my son, and I will keep fo- I will keep looking for it, the First Lady added. She spoke after President Joe Biden told CNN that he had great confidence in his son just last week. I love him, and he's on the straight and narrow, and he has been for a couple of years now, and I'm just so proud of him. The POTUS pointed out. Someone should probably direct our first lady to the Department of Justice because we're hearing reports. They are, they might be just coming close to an indictment of Hunter Biden. More on Joe Biden says that he still has time to decide whether to run for a second term in 2024 or not. Quoting, the reason I am not making a judgment about formally running. Once, I make that judgment, a whole series of regulations kick in, and I'd have to treat myself as a candidate from that moment on. I have not made that formal decision, but it's my intention, my intention to run again. And we have time to make that decision. Biden said this during an interview that aired on MSNBC on Friday. Asked about what the First Lady thinks of the prospects of him running for a second term Biden, who will be turning 80 next month said that she was supportive. Yes, that is the right thing to say. Will Biden run? I keep saying. He will not, if he makes it to 2024. The FBI issued an alert claiming that the Iranian-backed hacker group Eminent Passagard. Passagard may present a threat to U.S. entities ahead of the midterm elections in November. Quoting, within the past year, the FBI has identified a destructive cyber attack against a U.S. organization indicating the group remains a cyber threat to the United States. This is according to the FBI report. According to the information, the FBI information, the Iranian cyber group, eminent pathogod, has been conducting hack-and-leak operations against organizations primarily in Israel. Although Eminent's latest attacks have primarily targeted Israel, the FBI judges the hacker group may potentially target U.S. entities as seen during Eminent's cyber-enabled information on operation they targeted the 2020 U.S. presidential election. A federal appeals court issued an administrative state on Friday temporarily blocking Joe Biden's plan to cancel what could amount to billions of dollars in federal student loans. The court's edict could throw the program into limbo only days after students start applying for forgiveness. It is currently unclear what the decision means for the 22 million borrower, nearly 22 million borrowers who have already applied for relief. But White House Press Secretary Karine Jean Pierre encouraged borrowers to continue applying for aid while things are sorted out, as the court's temporary order does not prevent applications for the review. I want to bookmark something here. We remember when Barack Obama um, signed the executive order for DACA. It was said then that the reason that he couldn't do it is because Congress would not act on it. Um, We know then that once Donald Trump came into office, he rescinded that executive order. Executive orders can be rescinded by the next president. But let's see what the courts do. I'm convinced Biden knew that the courts would overturn it. But he wants to be able to say, I did something. In more domestic news, the Trump Organization is about to face a criminal trial, the result of a three-year investigation that included two trips to the Supreme Court to force former President Donald Trump to hand over his tax returns. Yes, we are still talking about those tax returns. Manhattan prosecutors have accused Trump Organization of helping top Executives avoid paying income taxes on compensation they received from the company. The start witness for the prosecution, Alan Weiselberg, who was a top executive for the company, says he received a Manhattan apartment, tuition for his grandbabies, and Mercedes-Benz cars for both he and his wife. More about former U.S. President Donald Trump hit it at his ready, hinted at his readiness to take part in the next. U.S. presidential election speaking at a rally in front of his supporters in Texas, Trump reiterated that the results of the 2020 election were rigged and stolen. I ran twice. I won twice. And I did much better the second time than I did the first, getting millions more votes in 2020 than I got in 2016 and likewise, getting more votes than any sitting president in the history of our country by far. Now, In order to make our country successful and glorious again, I will probably have to do it again, Trump said. Yes, Donald Trump received the most votes out of any incumbent U.S. president in history, and Joe Biden received the most votes of any presidential nominee in U.S. history. In international news, the threat of Ukraine using a dirty bomb is real and is up to Western countries whether they want to believe in the danger, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov has said. The fact that they do not trust the information which was provided by the Russian side does not mean that the threat of the use of such a dirty bomb C-62 exists. The threat is present. This information was brought to the attention of the Russian defense ministers and it's up to them whether they want to believe it or not, Peskov told journalists in a briefing on Monday. Russia's defense ministry reported on Sunday that the defense minister, um, Shogi had conveyed his concerns about Kiev's possible use of a dirty bomb and phone calls with his French, British, American, and Turkish counterparts. According to Russian military intelligence, the bomb creation has reached its final
1: stage. Hey, real quick, just cool. an inter- um, interruption. Rishi, Rishi Sunak has become prime minister of Great Britain. Apparently, he must have got the 100 member votes. Oh, wow. Especially with Boris. Because, you know, Boris Johnson Because he was, dropped out over Yeah, the weekend, he dropped out. Right, right. And so the thought was it was going to be Boris or Sunak. Boris Johnson drops out. It looks super weird that Boris Johnson became prime minister again after... Failing out the first time around, mm-hmm. Sunak. I think he might have had one person he was running against, but he was clearly on the person who was leading that contest. They said it was a ninety-five percent chance. First thing this morning, at this point, he's prime minister. Wow! Yeah, breaking news. Breaking news. See, your place for breaking news
2: and more international news. More than eighty percent of Russians have expressed confidence in President Vladimir Putin. While over 70% approve of his performance, a new poll conducted by the Russian public opinion research V-C-I-O-M shows only 14% of the Russian population do not approve of Putin's performance as president. This was according to the survey conducted this month. More than 80% of respondents said they trusted Vladimir Putin, while 77% said they approved of his performance. Mistrust in the Russian leader was expressed by just... 16% 16% of those polled. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova stated that the Washi- that Washington had fueled the movement against Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban since the U.S. does not consider the country obedient enough. Quoting, Now it turns out that the opposition in Budapest was also financed by Hungarian newspaper Magyar Niz- Nimzet published an investigation into the funding of the liberal-left coalition opponents of Prime Minister Victor Orban by the American NGO Action for Democracy. The investigators and special services will probe all the circumstances of the attempts of foreign meddling in the political life of the country but it is already obvious that the bill approaches millions of dollars, Zakharova said. According to the report, the foundation created just before the February elections enjoyed close ties with European Council on Foreign Relations. On with the European Council on Foreign Relations, the report also suggested that Action for Democracy is connected to Hungarian-born billionaire George Soros who funds Open Society Foundations, which was banned by Hungary several years ago. The Financial Times reported that Venezuelan opposition political parties are discussing plans to oust the country's opposition figure, Juan Guaido, on Friday. Venezuela's opposition fig- figure, Guaido, may disappear from the political arena as early as next year due to his scarce support from the U.S. and the Venezuelan opposition analyst Basim Tajaldeen told Sputnik Mundo. Tajaldeen pointed out that the Venezuelans' frustration over Guaido is in particular visible in the opposition party's actions in which the politician is literally being kicked out. He added that he was especially surprised about the lack of support for Guaido from Washington because the rejection within the opposition was something that has long been clear and recognized. In tech news, a new study by one poll on behalf of Butterfinger, this is the candy bar, found that more than half, at least 51% of Americans who enjoy movies root for the villains. Another 60% of viewers, according to the poll, watch a series or films just for the villain, while 77% of viewers think that a villain can make or break a show or film. I happen to agree with this. The candy bar company conducted the poll to help introduce Robin Fingers, (laughs) Butterfingers investigators' newest nemesis the company was interested in ascertaining what kind of affinity potential customers have for villains and whether or not they were as important to the viewer's perception as protagonists in pop culture. Though only 25% of participants in the study, which comprised over 2,000 people, preferred the villain over the hero. Most of those participants were Gen Z, who attribute their preference to the villain's complexity at 69%, while older millennials identified more with the villain's backstory. This number was at 50%. Gen X participants indicated they were drawn to what they considered to be the more interesting powers
1: of villains. Jizzy likes the villains, folks! (laughs) I mean, the Rose Gallery is important, though, right? I mean, we think of Heath Ledger's Joker, for example. Yes. Fascinating character. Yes. I mean, in the way that they mimic the hero, in a way, it's like this kind of weird thing. You need a good villain.
2: I'm not Gen Z, but I love villains. (laughs) Yes. They do make or break the story. Agreed. And on this day in history, in 1929, Black Thursday, start of the stock market crash, Dow Jones down 12.8%. And in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis soviet ships approach but stopped short of the u.s blockade of cuba and in 2008 bloody friday saw many of the world's stock exchanges experience the worst declines in their history with drops of around 10 percent in most indices these are your headlines for today monday october 24th you are listening to fault lines on radio Sputnik.
1: I agree with him. Villains are important, villains? man. Villains are important. Spider-Man, Rogues Gallery, for example. I mean, what Batman has the Joker. Superman has, well, Superman always has a problem with villains because he's so yeah, powerful.
2: Superman has the villains the or well, the people in the, I don't know. Do, do, do you watch like the old, like the old Superman movies? Yeah,
1: I, I remember them. I haven't watched him. You mean the Christopher Reeve Superman? Yes,
2: the I haven't seen that one Reece. in a while. Yeah, but yeah, Zod, yeah. Zod. Neil before Zod?
1: Yeah, that's the name I love I'm that. <laughs> Neil before Zod. That is the greatest sign ever. Neil, I love that. Um, yeah, so villains are important, man, yeah. and they, they have a complexity about them that that works. Like for example, with Batman and Joker. Like, is the Joker that different from Batman? I mean, Batman has basically decided the social fabric doesn't necessarily work in order to get rid of the worst aspects of our culture. And it's not even the worst aspects of our culture. He's beating people up on the streets. I mean, he's a billionaire that has money to do. He just doesn't kill him. Yeah, right. He just doesn't kill him. Batman doesn't like guns. Batman goes and punches people in the face. And he bruises, but he doesn't necessarily kill. Mm -hmm. And then you get the Joker who says, I agree with you. Society... It's a mask. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a shallow thing over how human beings really are. And all things being equal, on a bad day, those people can lose their mind and be every bit as bad as me. And so you get these two people who are arguing different sides, but ultimately agree on the same point that society, in and of itself, is not adequate enough to deal with the problems of society. It's the weirdest thing yeah. in the world when you get Batman and Joker in the same room, and Batman is like roughing the Joker up, and Joker is kind of like, you know, you're, you're like me. You're like me. Batman hates
2: that. The villain's story is always, I always find the villain's story fascinating. And keep in mind, we literally build movies around the villain's story. It's like, how how did this guy get to this point? Harley Quinn, you know. know, How did she get to Harley Quinn? Right. Poison Ivy? You can go down the whole list of villains. Yeah. And
1: well, Penguin. How did they get to who they are? Even Zod. I mean, Zod is trying to recreate Krypton, right? Yes. I mean, from his framing of things... My responsibility is to my planet, not even just a per- my planet, not even a country. And I need to reform Krypton. The problem is you can't kill everybody on Earth in order to do it. That doesn't make it right. Meaning the fact that you lost your place doesn't necessarily make it right for you to take somebody else's. But if I'm not mistaken, it's was responsible for that. Yes. <laughs> like like it's his fault. <laughs> like a military guy. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with Malik Abdul. We'll be back in a moment.
0: Fault Lines.
1: Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with Malik Abdul. We are taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Recy Shudak, the new prime minister of the UK, just broke, just released. Malik, I don't know if you follow British politics, so it's unfair for me to drag you into this. I, I have begun
2: following British politics since...
1: August. It is fascinating, <laughs> right? Like I used, to, I it pulled me in from the PMQs, Prime Minister Questions, that would pull me in, and I would watch, and the crowd was like, Aah! they would scream it. and they have this way of going after the person in brutal terms. Now, oftentimes, the prime minister rarely answers a question. Like, if you're watching it, it's like, okay, food banks have expanded 20% since you've taken office. This is your fault. Well, we are making the best thing we possibly can for the British government. We are the Tories, and we are responsible for blah, 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 blah. And then the background, Ugh! And they're, like, going <laughs> back and forth at each other. <laughs> like, the, the best times are when the prime minister has screwed up on something. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're going to catch it. And you know they going to catch it. And everybody who stands up, okay, everybody who stands up is going to hit the prime minister on that very specific point. When Theresa May was in office, Jeremy Corbyn nearly wins the election. He came close. He came very close. Jeremy Corbyn, even though he lost, came in like a peacock. He was strident. And it was like the strongest that you've seen Corbyn. Because up to this point, oh, this guy, is, he should never be in politics. This guy's worthless. Who's this random guy that's on the far left? When he got that close, oh, that was over with. You had to take them as a real actor in the in the political mm. space, and he knew it, and he acted as such. When Boris Johnson gets in, and they have Brexit referendum, Boris Johnson beats the Stefan out of German Corbyn. And it's like a matchup in style where German Corbyn's style matches up very well with Theresa May, horribly, with Boris Johnson. Horribly so. I mean, it's, it, I so love was, Boris more,
2: was he more of a Trump? Election yes, he was,
1: but he's much brighter than Trump. I don't think it's fair for them to um, make the comparison, even though I get why they make the comparison. Somewhat of a personality, Buffon, wise? yeah, personality-wise, right. lies through his teeth at, on a whim, but has political acumen mm. that can't be understated. And being able to take that political framing of, well, this guy can't say he's for Brexit. I am freedom and justice, and I believe in referendum and the British democracy. Like, extremely adept at being, a, look, I don't like the guy. But at that time, if I think if I was in the UK, I probably would have voted for him. Mm. I mean, it's that. To do, look, Jeremy Corbyn is absolutely right. They're going to carve up the NHS. Thousand percent right. But that's not the conversation we're having. We're having a conversation about Brexit. And so it's like if you can't talk about Brexit because your party is constraining you well, you look like a weak leader. Mm-hmm. You don't look like a weak leader at all. Bush Johnson took advantage of that, knew his backbench was going after him and went at Corbyn like nobody's business. And I said there were seats that had been in labor since the beginning of labor that Boris Johnson took. It was that bad. It was to that extent. Boris Johnson is out. And at this point, the conservatives have been so ridiculous that they're expecting Labor to win regardless of who they put in if they have another election. So we'll see. Rishi Shunak was one of those people that was running in the election um, against uh, Liz Truss. Anyway, I think it was Liz Truss. Yeah, Liz Truss anyway. So... Or was it Boris? Maybe I'm misremembering mis, um, m- that. But either way, he had ran for PM once before. And the people who are on the ground there basically made the point of saying, we don't think he's going to win because he's not white enough. Because their thing is, you don't get a prime minister in the UK that is yeah, that's, that's not white. I mean, call it what it is, right? Mm. And you had a few people, especially people who are immigrants in the country, was like, there's no way Sunak is going to take that. You guys are wrong. Sunak just took that. Yeah, it took Liz Truss to basically flame out before that lettuce flamed out. But all things been equal. Sunak is your new prime minister. They said Monday. They said Monday. And by the way, they always say, like, they always say, like, when the um, economy crashed in the U.S., well, let's give it to the black guy to fix it. <laughs> Maybe it's like that there, right? It's like, give it to the guy who's, who's not, like, the figure that out, fix that. <laughs> Who knows? Tarif, what's going on, man? How you doing this morning?
5: New Orleans. Thank y'all for taking my call. First, all, like I to say, free joining signs. I got a comment to make about what's going on in Ukraine. Oh, go for it. Of course, y'all been talking... Yeah, of course I've been talking about the dirty bomb or mini nuke that might be you. Mm-hmm. Apparently with the telegram, what they were saying, Alice McCurris and some other people sent talking about it might be used before November the eighth to try to get the chicken hawks, Warhawks back in office, give it the um the power back to the DNC and um the, the Rhino Republicans, right? Yeah. Now and also what disturbing is that you have um, the 101st is in Europe. They haven't been in Europe in years. Yes.
1: They're, they're basically waiting in Romania or somewhere um, like that, basically saying if there's anything major that takes place, we will get involved. And it's like, what do you mean major taking place? I mean, uh, please finish your commentary. I'm sorry.
5: Yeah, they, they'll use them to probably put them Odessa, to Odessa so Russia won't completely block off Ukraine. And if they get in contact with Russia, then it could be all. Uh, um, a major wall, conventional wall breakout. And also the speculation that Poland might invade yes. Belarus. That's why you got troops going into Belarus from Russia. And you got on the, the, uh, November the 15th coming up along with November the 8th, two important days where you got the G20 summit. So if that bomb is used, dirty bomb, I think that's going to be used. It's going to be used before November eight, 8th where you're going to have to, uh, where they're going to try to turn the global south, the, the, um, the G20 against Russia.
1: But that's going to be difficult to do considering that 75% of the world basically stepped out of this, meaning they're not getting involved. And Russia has been saying, nuclear bomb, nuclear bomb. These guys are talking about dropping a dirty bomb. And look, this is kind of like in Syria, right? Assad took back 90 or 90-something percent of his territory. And the U.S. was like, oh, they're going to use a chemical weapon. They've taken 90% of their territory back. Why would he do that? And their response is, He's a bad guy. He's just a bad guy. As if these guys don't necessarily have any kind of, you know, logical framing that's based off or that's um, powering their actions. Same thing here. If if Ukraine is in a situation, let's say it's not Ukraine. Let's say it's any other country. And let's say that country is under threat and that country has nuclear weapons. Would they use them in order to try to defend the integrity of the country? Now, let's take this to Ukraine for a moment. If Ukraine believes that the integrity of the country is basically being destroyed and they they don't have the military capability of doing anything about it, the West doesn't want to get involved because they don't want to get into a third world war. Would Ukraine do something to try to pull the West into the country, into the conflict? Now, when we're talking about Syria, for example, the terrorists that were in that country were trying to find something in order to create the premise of a false flag or a false flag in regards to a chemical weapon. I mean, uh, what's his name? Say one more thing after you finish. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, what's his, oh, what is his name? It's a reporter. He wrote the book, The Reporter. Seymour Hersh was making that point, basically saying in the London Review, they wouldn't even publish it here in the States, that you had terrorists moving weapons or moving objects through in order to try to preempt or create chemical weapons in order to drag the West into the conflict, because um, all things being equal, Russia and Iran had got involved, and Assad was maintaining his position. So would I expect something like that potentially to take place here? If Ukraine believed it was losing? Absolutely. Thousand percent, absolutely. Especially with the U.S. setting that framing up. Well, nuclear weapon, nuclear weapon, Armageddon, and all of this other stuff. I think they're creating pretext for it. Tarif, please continue.
5: Yeah, and also to go along with that, they're afraid that the Europe Europeans are starting to rise up to, against the governments right now, and also the rumor is that they're looking for distraction to take the uh the um focus off of them back on Russia. You know, dealing with that mini nuke that might be used, a dirty bomb, which they're going to blame Russia. So we'll see what's going to happen in the next coming two two weeks before November the 8th. Sharif,
1: I-, I hope, man, you have no idea how treacherous of a course this is if that is true. You have, like, it's talking about one second to midnight. I mean, that's what we're talking about. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong on this. I mean, if you get a situation where Poland and the United States, let's say Ukraine does lop off a dirty bomb. And again, I, this is not beyond the realm of possibility. For You must understand from their context, it's existential. Their country, they're losing. And mm-hmm. they can't necessarily win that fight militarily. And the only way you're going to have the chance of winning that fight is if you're able to bring in U.S. forces or NATO or somebody else in order to help you in that situation. If the United States was under threat in a way where we thought our our existence as a country, was under attack? Would we, we use nukes? Of course yes. we use nukes. Yeah, the answer is yes, right? I mean, even in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were willing to go to nuclear war in order to preserve the integrity of the country to prevent nukes or weapons from going into Cuba. Why would Ukraine be different? I think that's the thing that people have to reconcile. Why would they be different? And if they do, and the U.S. decides, like— Russia blew up its own pipeline. <laughs> Russia attacked its own, own people. At the, yeah, and, all of these yeah. things that Russia's doing to themselves for whatever particular reason. They'll do the same thing here. I mean, think how ridiculous it is that Russia blew up its own pipeline, but that's the logic. They want. but they didn't even care. They didn't, you're not even caring to come up with a decent answer to try to explain this. Just, oh, Instead Russia, of turning it off. Yeah, they can just turn it off. Going to blow it up. So from your standpoint, I mean, what does it mean if that happens? If right. they do release a Logio meet, nuke? Europe comes around and says, Russia did it, despite mm-hmm. the fact that Russia has no reason to do it, then
2: what? And and, and Zelensky also made a statement. Um, yeah, talking about they I should was, have
1: a preemptive nuclear strike on Russia. Yeah,
2: I was trying to find it because I was reading it when I was on the train coming in. And he essentially, what he said is essentially what the same thing that Putin
1: said that yeah.
2: it, it was one of those, we'll use whatever's at our disposal right.
1: to protect the Zelensky integrity of our country. literally
2: just made the very very similar yeah. comment. Because any he country would do it. He nuclear or anything, but he said that essentially they would do whatever um, right. they have at their disposal. If that means blowing up a bridge, if that means yeah. blowing up a dam, or if that means same thing attacking US the Zabrosian nuclear the Uni- plant. The United States has not just said, but has done Yes, over and over
1: again. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. So when I hear Russia saying that, I don't look at it and think to myself, oh, that's beyond the realm of possibility. I don't think that at all. And if Poland, yes, Poland would totally do it. Would, mm. I mean, meaning get involved. Um, Is the U.S. itching to get involved? I don't know, man. Joe Biden is nuts if he thinks that this is a good pathway. What I'm hoping is when Russia contacted those people, the U.S. and the European leaders told them, cut it out. And then went out and said, this is nonsense. We don't believe this would happen at all. Despite behind the scenes saying, don't do that. Don't do that. But I don't know if
2: they're doing that. And and I know we're getting ready to go um, into break. But I'm actually, I've been surprised at how muted the neocons have been in this whole discussion. Yeah. I mean, they're here. Mm -hmm. But they're not just rallying Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Yeah. It's a little different than what we've seen in like other um, situations
1: um, that we've been involved in. Mm
2: -hmm. It's a little different.
1: Yeah. Super weird. We'll see what happens when Trump starts to run and this becomes one of those things of contest. It will be
2: a campaign
1: issue. It would be very, yeah. Yeah. It's going to be super weird. I mean, especially since the media has taken such an opposite tact on yes. it and we can talk to Kim about it yes. so look you guys are listening to Fault Lines my name is Jamal Thomas Malik Abdul we're coming back with the one and only Kim Averson she hasn't been here for a while but she's going to be here today in fact she's here now back in a moment
0: Fault Lines
1: Fault Lines Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to live in the D.C. area or find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Malik and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with the chat, tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. We've already taken calls, so that one is a little bit moot. But I want to get to our guests. We have the one and only Kim Iverson. Kim Iverson is an independent journalist and host of The Kim Iverson Show on YouTube. Kim, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning?
6: I'm good. Thanks for having me on.
1: And it is early morning for you in California. So I definitely appreciate you joining us. Um, I want to start with Malik and I ended with McCarthy warns GOP may cut back Ukraine aid if party wins the House. Now, from the standpoint of the American public, economics and inflation are the two main issues that are associated with the public that they are most angry about. The public basically blames Joe Biden on this. And a lot of this. The U.S. was getting, what, 700,000 barrels a day from Russia at the point before the gas thing came into play. And so McCarthy says, I think people are going to be sitting in a recession and they're not going to write a blank check to Ukraine, quote unquote, McCarthy said in an interview with Punchbowl News on Tuesday, quote, they just won't do it. And what he's talking about is the expectation of like two million jobs being lost and the U.S. going into a recession while simultaneously being 31 trillion dollars in debt and still giving billions. To Ukraine, his point is this is going to become a political issue, and I strongly suspect, basically, le- thinking or le- um, listening to some of the things Trump has been saying several months ago, that this is indeed going to be a campaign issue. Is McCarthy wrong for bringing this up? What are your thoughts?
6: No, I mean he's definitely not wrong in bringing it up. I just don't think that's actually going to happen. I don't. I think that as soon as the GOP takes over the House and the Senate, you know, uh, both both chambers are one or one of the other. I don't think that they're actually going to follow through with cutting back aid to Ukraine. I think that some of them will talk about it, but I think that they're too bought off, quite frankly, by the military-industrial complex, just like the Democrats are, that they will find an excuse, they will find a way to continue to fund this war, and they'll just, they'll just tug at different strings. You know, Democrats use certain language to get their base rallied up, around an idea— and the GOP knows that they can use other phrases, other sentences. They can they can rile people up using you know, other other ways. And so I think they're just going to get in there, and it's going to be more of the same. I think they'll campaign on it, mm-hmm. and I think they'll win um, because of the campaigning on it. I think people are fed up with it, but I don't think they're going to actually follow through in the end. I think we'll continue to see more funds being sent over to Ukraine.
1: But see, to me, the only reason McCarthy would bring this up is if he knew his constituents was against it. Meaning they're reading the room like even Trump on some level is reading the room. And if they're reading the room on this, is it possible for them, especially if Trump, let's say, for the example, Donald Trump campaigns on this very specific issue, because Donald Trump's thing is this war should happen. If I was in office, we would have never been in this particular situation. And look, you may have a point, right? The Afghanistan pullout, for example, was utterly chaotic or um. Yeah, it was it was horrible, catastrophic in the way that Joe Biden implemented that. Even going for the war itself or North Korea, where North Korea and South Korea have been trading back and forth over the weekend. I mean, none of this stuff was happening under Trump. So if Trump comes in and Big Papa is making a campaign argument that, yeah, we're going to look into this. We're not sure how much we want to continue to invest in this. We need to bring this war to an end. And the fact that Republicans have basically checked the temperature of the room and come to a conclusion, yes, the public will back us on this very specific policy. Is it possible that this is going to be something that they push? I guess my thing is the fact that they're bringing it up in and of itself is somewhat indicative of a political, let's say, positioning of the of the country itself where they realize this is a winning issue. I it's guess part strategic. of it. Yeah, it's a strategic it's issue. Strategic. I guess my thing is, don't they on some level have to follow through if they get an office on this issue?
6: Uh, certainly some of them will say it. I mean, I think if Trump were to become, I mean, look, we're, we're coming up to midterm, right. just going to be the house and Senate. So I don't think anybody in the house or Senate, I mean, I think you're going to get a handful of people. You might get McCarthy, for example, saying we need to pull back on the aid. Certainly isn't going to end it all together, but maybe might drastically reduce it. You're going to have guys like Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham.
1: Oh, oh
6: yeah. for war. Yeah. So so it's going to be infighting with the GOP. It's not going to be just this clear cut. Um, yeah, we're going to we're going to scale back. I, I think that there's going to be that will be a battle between the GOP, and it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But ultimately, I don't have any faith that we're actually going to be cutting back or even significantly scaling down. It might just be somewhat modestly reduced. However. You know, Trump, if he were to win the presidency in 2024, but, you know, that's a ways away. But if he were to win the presidency, I do believe that Trump actually would demand to scale it down. I I don't you know, he's not he's not a careerist. You know, he's not a political careerist. He's not uh, he's not in bed with the military industrial complex like so many in Congress are. So I do think that Trump would actually um, on this issue would scale back. Significantly, but that's so far away. You know, if he were to become president, who knows if he's even running,
2: right? So, Kim, that you actually raise a good point. And good morning, thanks for joining us. I know it's early for you, um, and I can tell you, you have a lot of fanboys here. Uh, and so, we were excited when they said that Kim Iverson was going on. I, I enjoyed being on with you when you were on Rising, um, but. You make a very good point, and I think it's a good distinction to make between Donald Trump, who, for all intents and purposes, isn't, we can say, bought and sold by the lobbying industry. And there is a difference to be made between what Donald Trump is going to be focused on versus the GOP. I agree with you. I think that McCarthy, um, members of Congress, I have absolutely no faith that they will pull back the, the purse string in these next two years when it comes to funding Ukraine. I think they're going to campaign on it, but they're not going to do anything. And I do believe if Donald Trump gets in office, I don't think that Donald Trump will do anything demonstrably. Different. I think he will scale back, um, you know, to a degree, a very small degree, but I don't think it's going to be anything significant. But I wanted to ask you about Desantis, and I don't know if you saw over. I think it was over the weekend. There was this Financial Times article. It was a very long article, and the quote, and I'll read it to you. um, The tweet that was sent out and kind of marketing the arc. It talks about. It says, "Yikes." According to a friend, DeSantis would tell dates that he liked Thai food, but pronounced it (laughs) "thai." And if they corrected him, Finch wrote, he would find an excuse to leave. He didn't want a girlfriend who corrected him. Now, this is the story. This is the story that they were able to pull out of that. The reason that I mentioned this, and I um, want your thoughts on it, is because it reminds me of the 2012 um, article. I think it was a New York Times article that they ran on Mitt Romney. It was a long, lengthy, it was a front page article. And essentially, they had basically accused him being a bully. And um, I think it was at his boarding school. The reason that I bring this up is because I haven't been a super fan of DeSantis. I'm, you know, I'm more Trump than DeSantis. I don't necessarily like Trump 2.0 in DeSantis. But when the media continues to do these type of things, write these type of articles, it is the very same way how it helped Donald Trump, where the media just went after him so unfairly. Here we have a Financial Times article a lengthy article talking about the fact that how DeSantis pronounced the word "tie," Like, that is what the media focused on. That's Do what's you...
1: important, man. <laughs> That's what's important.
2: Do you think that the media is making a mistake and um, running these type of stories on DeSantis? Do you think it's gonna, these type of things ultimately helps rather than hurt DeSantis?
6: Absolutely help him. I mean, the media still is not getting there. They're not seeming to understand. And really, the, the Democrats just and, of course, media that is controlled by the left. Right. Um, they're just not understanding that people are. I mean, all they're doing right there is anyone who reads that and says, well, I don't like Ron DeSantis already decided they don't like Ron DeSantis. They're not convincing the people who like Ron DeSantis, anyone who likes them. They're going to read that article and roll their eyes and say, oh, my gosh, okay, give me a break. You know, this is hearsay. I mean, we don't know. know, know, Oh, we've got multiple girlfriends saying that he does this thing. Or how old was he when he did that? Right. (laughs) While. How many of us have done stupid things? And and maybe that was just his excuse because it was a bad date for many other reasons. Right. And he would just use that as an excuse to get out of it and say something stupid so he didn't have to say, I just don't like you it's just right. funny
1: that
2: that's what they choose I and mean, this is they're focused on this was when he was at Yale um well, so, so he was in like 20 yeah oh no this is like early on he literally was in his undergraduate degree at Yale but but the, but they but they write these type of stories and it's supposed to and as Kim said you know if if you don't like DeSantis you're not going to like him after this story right. but these type of things they literally give media sometimes give layups to conservatives because people look at it and they say to themselves, okay, this just sounds like BS. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, you, you're you taking nitpicking to it a totally different level, but it speaks to how out of touch the media is when it's not just covering conservatives, but really the American people. Kim, you talk a lot about this type of stuff, being in tune with where the American people are. And if I could just shift um, very quickly, the um, I, the recent... Uh, but I, I guess they're going to come to a meeting or something over the CDC guidance, the COVID vaccines the for um, K-12 through 12 students, where they're saying we're not going to mandate it, but they're um, considering placing it on the list of vaccines for students. This is after. A required, you mean yeah, oh, like so, the typical thing that so kids you know, have the to get from school. List, right. Yes, so now they're considering adding COVID, the COVID vaccine, to that very list, even though with all of the studies that we've seen, now we're at a different place than where we were in 2020. Now we know, as far as the efficacy of vaccines for you know and definitely young kids, but K through 12 age kids, the CDC is now recommend, well, may recommend adding the COVID vaccine to the list of vaccines for K through 12 students. Kim, what do you think about that? Especially knowing what we know now. About the vaccine?
6: Yeah, I mean, it's really ridiculous. Obviously, I think at this point, um, it's, it's, I mean, what would be the point of, you know, or even asking or even recommending it to them? I mean, it doesn't even make sense to even recommend it. They're not a high risk category. They're not, uh, so we, we know it doesn't stop the spread, it's not about them giving it to somebody in a high-risk category. So it doesn't really make sense why they would even recommend it and say this is something... I mean, they could say, yes, it's approved for kids. If you need it, if you feel like you need it, your kid is immunocompromised in some way, it is available to you. But to recommend it for healthy kids, um, it doesn't make sense. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused. They did vote to add this vaccine already. They voted and the conclusion was it was a 15 to zero. They unanimously voted. To add it to the recommendation to the recommended um, immunization schedule, so is what are what you're talking about is that in addition to that
2: that's a good question because i just this just I was just reading about this over the weekend, so that um I don't know the actual answer to that, and I think part of the discussion they're having is that the vaccine itself, so even though these are recommendations what people are suggesting that what very well may happen out of this is that states then actually mandate it. So, you know, this is, you know, saying that the CDC recommends this, this is one thing, but mandating it is something totally different. And I'm here in Washington, D.C., and I'm sure, well, I, I know because I watched you talk about the decision for students here and uh, DCPS students to get the vaccine where it was a mandate. And what people don't realize is that that um, it was postponed So there will be another decision coming in January whether to mandate the vaccine for DCPS students. I was railing against that. And fortunately, there were Republicans, conservatives started talking about the DCPS case because it was an outlier when it comes to school districts all around the country in mandating the vaccine. But I suspect that D.C., especially considering the CDC's recommendations, they very well may do that. So I'm not sure if it's a different um, rule. And I actually need to look into that. So thanks for bringing that up.
6: Yeah, well, so and that's the thing that the CDC is trying to say now, because once they voted to add it to the recommendation immunization schedule for kids, um, and now it's been added, people were saying, great, now this is going to lead to mandates. And the CDC came out and said, well, we don't mandate anything. We just give recommendations. Well, yeah, we know you don't mandate anything. We know you're not in control of that. The problem is other entities like schools will then mandate it because, and they, and they mandate, they only do mandates based on CDC recommendations. So it's this circle, you know, it's this circular situation where the CDC recommends it, and then you've got employers and schools and after school programs and whatever, you know, they're then saying now it's mandated based on the CDC recommendation. Although that being said, I don't know if there's really truly um, a big threat there to for this to end up ending up on mandate lists for school kids. And the reason is parents just aren't going to do it. They're not going to go for it. And ultimately, these schools um, they're bleeding students at this point. I mean, students are going to homeschooling at extremely high rates. Um, other kids are just not showing up to school. We, we saw with the pandemic, it was disastrous. There were some kids, especially in inner city areas, where they don't have a lot of at-home support, not attending school at all, you know, for a couple of years. So I don't think that these schools are going to end up really truly mandating the COVID vaccine because parents just aren't going to go for it. I mean, we saw even in D.C. it wasn't popular. Here in California, it wasn't popular when they tried to mandate it. We thought even when they rolled out vaccines for infants, they were you know, thinking there would be tons of parents lining up, finally getting their under five-year-olds vaccinated, and hardly anyone showed up to get that done. So as much as they try to push something, as much as they think there's high demand for this. They then find out there isn't. Parents are extremely protective and very skeptical when it comes to their children, so they're not going to. Uh, I, I just, I, I. Yes, it's possible for schools. They absolutely can begin to try to mandate these based on CDC recommendations. I don't. I, I think it's going to be. I don't think we're going to see very many actually go through with it.
2: I actually agree with that. And I, and you're right. It was October 20th. The Advisory Committee on Imm- Immunization Practices voted in favor of and adding it. So you were right. They actually already voted to do this.
1: Yeah, this is not good. Kim, I agree with you on this one. Usually you and I get into fights over the COVID stuff. Um, but this is too far. I mean, look, all things have been equal. What Biden came out said COVID is not an issue, give or take. The pandemic is over. Yeah, the pandemic is over. Um, despite using Title 42. Um, <laughs> so there's that. Um, while fighting in a court, um, no less. And the um, HEROES Act. And the HEROES Act. The student loans. Yeah, yet. there's that. And I definitely <laughs> want to get into that. But on this, Kim, I agree with you. At a certain point, it becomes ridiculous. Um, and it becomes more of a, of a cash grab as opposed to something that's actually being done for the issue of health. I mean, you're talking about kids. It's the least... Um, yeah, kids can get COVID, and maybe if we were in the middle of a million people dying, but this is not exactly where we are right now. We seem to be in a different place with us. So, Kim, agree. Um, I want to get to the the student loan thing. Um, this is <laughs> politics, and I hate it. <laughs> Biden has the ability by himself to get rid of student loan debt. He can go through Department of Education if he wants to use that provision in order to basically put it on um, hiatus. He didn't do that, though. He used the HEROES Act in order to kind of come up with a justification to remove 10,000, and now that is being challenged in court. Did Biden do this knowing full well that he wasn't going to be able to get it passed in the way that he was trying to do it? What are your thoughts?
6: I mean, that's always a suspicion with anything they do. Yes.
1: Yes, it is, especially Democrats, yes.
6: Yeah, right, because it just seems like, you know, they want to placate people. They want to say, look, we're doing something for you. We're going to help you. But at the end of the day, they're bought off. And so they're getting, you know, they're 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 too in bed with the big money interest. And what the big money interests don't really want to see this happening. They don't want to see suddenly a bunch of the debt just erased from the books, and they're never going to collect their money. Um, the the craziest thing about it, and I know when conservatives get really upset about student debt relief, and they say, "Well, why should I have to pay?" And you know what they don't understand is that the the those of us that have student debt have already paid back our loans in the form of interest. I mean, the amount of interest we've paid on these loans alone has, has already outweighed, most of the time, the principle of the loan itself. We've already paid back everything. You know, we've already paid back the money. It's just that it was counted as interest, so we continue to still owe. It's, it's, a, it's this debt trap that is, you know, really, as a country, we shouldn't think it's okay to add this much interest or any interest at all on the student debt, certain debt should not have interest. That would be, in my opinion, medical debt, for example, patient debt. You know, there are certain debt that that we could slice off and say this isn't just you living high on the hog with your credit card and buying fancy cars and getting a bunch of stuff. It's education.
1: And we're doing this to eighteen-year-olds, twenty-one-year-olds. I mean, to me, there's certain debt that shouldn't happen at all. Education debt being one of those things, medical debt being one of those things. I mean, I'd say that from the standpoint of your country wants kids to get an education. They always hold it in front of them saying, hey, if you want to have a decent life, you should go to school. And then by the time they get to the point of 17 years old, it's like, oh, by the way, this is going to cost you $56,000 that is going to be on your back for the next 30 years, give or take. And if you try to file, if you can't use it for bankruptcy. And even if you get 20 years out, if let's say you're getting Social Security or something, they were garnishing your Social Security check in order to try to recoup the money from those loans. It is appalling. Other countries, let's say if you're going into Europe, understands that their you know their country goes by their population. Meaning, if their population is educated, if their population is let's say um, on some level taken care of, or at the very least have the ability to take care of themselves. You have issues less of crime, less political instability, less of all those things. I mean, for God's sake, we're preventing people from getting marriages from buying homes. like the deleterious effects for having one point, I don't know, five trillion dollars that are basically on the back of the various people in the country itself. I mean, if you have Democrats, whether you agree with the policy or whether you agree with this idea that student debt shouldn't be a thing, it's almost secondary to the point that this is something that Democrats supposedly are for. And Joe Biden is putting out this. Uh, You know, okay, we're going to give it to you, but not. It's that nonsense. Even like the marijuana thing. It was like, okay, we're going to eliminate 6,000 people. Okay, 6,000 people. You have the ability to get rid of the scheduling like you said you were going to do when you were on your campaign trail. Even a $15 an hour minimum wage. Joe Biden said that anything less is a starvation wage. And he immediately gave it up. At the moment, he got any level of opposition to that particular plan at all. It's very aggravating. Um, But this does seem to be Democrats' modest operandi. But tell me if I'm wrong. If you disagree with me on it, hit me on it.
6: I agree with you. I just also think Republicans do. I <laughs> mean the same thing. Yeah. You know, everybody just says. I mean Well, there's
1: a difference though. I mean, the Republican Party is basically, look, I would argue the party for the rich. That's the way I've always understood them. Meaning, if they take things of we're going to cut services, we're going to cut benefits, understood, that's kind of their modest operandi. That's the way they function. Democrats are not that way though. Even though those guys they are being aren't. They're not supposed <laughs> to be. Let me put it that way. They don't supposed to be. Meaning whereas Democrat, Democrats have a con, um contradiction built into the just the way they operate in general. If you're going to get money from the rich, then you're going to have a difficult time making policies that those people are going to dislike. Whether it's loans, or meaning from um standpoint of student loans, whether it's the marijuana thing, or whether that's even the what's it's something else. Oh, the $15 minimum wage. Meaning the Republicans are philosophically consistent. We don't appreciate these things. We don't agree with these things. We're backing. We're getting money in order to prevent these things. Well, Democrats are different in a sense that they're going out saying we are for the working poor. And yet they're being paid for by people who are against the working poor. And so you get this kind of weird contradiction in their policies where instead of them being like a Sanders and saying, yeah, this is what I stand for. This is what I believe in. You get this milk toast nonsense where well, they don't necessarily really do anything and then they're hit politically for not doing anything. But tell me if I'm wrong.
6: No, I agree with you on that. It's more of that they're liars, right? So the Republicans, they are the I always call the Republican Party the party of no. They just say no. <laughs> no, we don't want to do that. No, we don't want to do that. <laughs> we want to get rid of that. And so because of it, they can actually um, keep their promises to their constituents a little bit better because they'll just continue to vote no on things or they actually do effectively reverse Certain policies, like we saw with Roe v. Wade, and we also saw with um, you know uh, uh, Paul Ryan's tax plan, so they do actually get stuff done for their voters. Whereas Democrats are right, they're they're playing, you know, they're two faced, right? So they they're they've got their rich donors, they are the wealthy class, and yet they try to claim that they're for the poor. Although I will say, I do think for Republicans, they're going to end up becoming similar to Democrats and being very two faced shortly. And it's because, interestingly, what we're seeing with the Republican Party is that they're becoming the anti-war party. Yes. Super weird, right? Very heavily. Right. Yeah. But they're still heavily bought off by the military industrial complex, which is why you've got the warmongering Marco Rubio's and Lindsey Graham's that are still there, you know, definitely ensuring that the military industrial complex continues to get its money. So we're going to see that because the Republican Party is shifting into the party of the working class. And Democrats are, are, are continually moving to the party of elite. So it will put, you know, it's going to we're going to see both both parties behaving like this for a while. As this transition happens, we're going to see Republicans lying to their constituents saying we're going to get out of these wars. We're going to end the war. And then they ultimately don't. And we're seeing Democrats saying we're going to do things for the working poor. And they ultimately don't. And we're going to see that shift. You know, there's well, that really honestly, that could be really triggering to the American people. It's going to be interesting to see what happens when neither party is is living up to anything. Um, right now, we're seeing a lot of people leaving the Democratic Party. A lot of them are joining the Republican Party or at least claiming to be independent, but still kind of leaning more Republican on a lot of things. And, um, and that's because the Republicans do seem to hold, you know, they seem to be actually um, – holding up their end of the bargain of what they're actually claiming they're going to do for their constituents they're actually still actually pr- producing but I don't know if that's going to last forever and there might be this weird period where neither party I know people are going to say well no it's always been that way neither party ever does anything but even more so where it's really glaringly obvious and I wonder if that is going to be you know ha- what's going to happen I think that could be That would would be an interesting point in time. That might be the time when third parties really truly finally rise up and replace. I mean, we've seen throughout history, um, you know, a third party will rise up. And and not that we would end up having viable third parties, but it it effectively replaces a party.
0: And you know
2: what, Kim, that's a very good point. And Jamal talks about... You know, questioning whether or not Donald Trump would run on Ukraine. And I absolutely think that he is. I think that's going to be the strategy for Donald Trump. And it's going to be an interesting juxtaposition between Donald Trump and the rest of the party. Um, One thing that I'll say, um, I'll mention, Jamal mentioned the the HEROES Act. And I just want to, because I've talked about that a number of times, so people can understand. And we can talk about why executive orders do or do not matter. Joe Biden did this as an executive order because many people don't realize that the Trump administration had a different interpretation of what the government can do when it comes to student loan student debt relief. Trump administration said they can't do it. Biden administration when they came in said that the Biden administration can do it. But the idea that they're atta- that they're using a program that was established post 9/11 that was supposed to um, address, you know, when we're in a national emergency, it's just the, it's not even hypocrisy. The ridiculousness of using that sort of authority that we got after 9-11 to deal with a national emergency that Biden himself said does not exist. He said it. He said it does not exist. But, but we're using this. But yeah,
1: that, great, great point, Kim. Absolutely great points. Kim, we got to close it. Please. But I want to thank you for yes. coming on. Because, look, uh, my producer is in love with you. Um, <laughs> everybody was applauding the fact that you came on, and I know that the audience is. And the balloons is, are here. Yeah. Right. Celebrating <laughs> <laughs> Right. So thank you for this, Kim. Always appreciate you joining us. Kim Iverson is an independent journalist and host of The Kim Iverson Show on YouTube. Um, yeah, love Kim. I, I, like I said, her and I used to get into these fights big time, over the COVID stuff. But always loved her as a um, well, guest Cameron's coming on to right, the show. On a
2: lot of it, <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> on some of it, she was right on some of it. Some of it, I'll put, it, I'll give her that much. <laughs> but I want to thank everybody. I want to thank our producers. I want to thank our engineer. I want to thank Malik Abdul. My name is Jamal Thomas. This is Fault Lines. We we'll see you bright and early Tuesday morning. Have a good one, guys. Fault Lines.